Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Howdy, howdy. Hi. And we are here to talk about Season 1 of David and Peaks. <laughs> we are 12 miles south of the Canadian border. Population 51,201. It really feels more like 501. Uh, but uh, before we... Or before handing it off to Chris... Uh, You've obviously watched the series several times, but Chris, have you had any experience with it before? Um, yeah, at some at some point in college, I think I started, you know, it would be like late 2000s, downloaded a couple episodes, and I think I started it, but um, I didn't uh, get too far. I think I might have mentioned it before. So you probably remember from, from your own misspent time in college, it's easy to get distracted with other things yep. <laughs> very quickly, so I didn't have the the uh, regimen down to, to just plow through this like I did uh, watching it this time around, which I'll get into when it's my turn to talk about the show. Uh, my colleague viewing very much depending on whether my friends were also watching it, and then, then I would plow through it. They didn't watch comics. I did watch, uh, where was I, Chris? Like, partway through season two? Like, right when you learned, spoiler, and you learned who killed Laura Palmer that David Lynch never wanted to reveal? Yep, you stopped, like, right after that. Um, I don't even know if you made it an episode after that. (laughs) I got to where I needed to be, and then I just fell off the train. But, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it when I watched it then, and uh, I just fell off the wagon of of watching an episode every now and again. But now that I have an excuse, I will definitely have to watch it all. Uh, See, I have notes that business I have. uh, I have a lot of pages of notes of just, like, random stuff that I I thought of while I was uh, watching the show, but... Without further ado, take it away, Chris. Twin Peaks, the greatest thing ever. Um, so what Twin Peaks is about is it follows David Lynch's uh, preoccupation with not so much the underbelly of society, but the duality of people, um, hence the title Twin Peaks. It's very straightforward. Um, it's not about boobs we like are, the restaurant. Yes, it's not, not boobs like the restaurant. Jesus. Thanks for reminding me that existed. <laughs> Um, it takes place in a quiet little mountain town up in the upper east corner of Washington State. Like Corey said, twi- 12 miles south of the Canadian border, 5 miles west of the border, uh, presuming he's meaning Idaho. Is that Idaho? Uh, that would be Idaho, fix Washington. Um, and Laura Palmer, the homecoming queen, the the darling of the entire town, has been found murdered, wrapped in plastic. Um, as good old Pete says, and this, this death, this death is an entryway into the town. Um, we meet a huge cast of characters because of their relation to and adjacent from Laura Palmer and the series intentionally spider webs out into multiple, multiple storylines following each of these different characters in many different situations at the forefront is our wonderful FBI special agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle MacLachlan, um, who comes in once a second victim has been found crossing the Canadian border on a couple of railroad tracks. Uh, she thankfully is not dead. That's how she was able to cross the border. Um, but that makes it a federal investigation, and Mr. Cooper discovers very quickly early on that this could be related to another murder that happened a year earlier in another part of Washington, and thus begins the spiraling, twisty, turvy journey into madness brought to us not just by David Lynch, but also by TV veteran Mark Frost, 
Uh, Mark Frost was best known for uh, Hill Street Blues back in the day, one of the groundbreaking uh, TV crime dramas. Um, and hold on, you missed that he co-wrote the Fantastic Four. The, the the movie from Roger Corman. What? Uh, yeah, the 2005 and 2007 movies. Oh, did he really? Listed as a co-writer. Right? Very interesting. Um, I didn't. I did. I don't think I knew that. But that is quite the uh, quite, quite the story. <laughs> Um, and the story kind of goes that Mark Frost helped build the world and flesh out the characters, and David Lynch controlled the direction of the the, the series, um, the dreaminess, the quirkiness, the craziness. That's pretty much all David Lynch, and the soap opera half is uh, Mark Frost. Um, so one of the things that I love about the series is how it was basically the first of its kind we have to remember this came out the the pilot aired in 1989 and the or it was made in 1989 and the series didn't uh come out on television until 1990 that at this time we're used to serialized television now that's become the norm quote unquote peak tv or cinematic tv however you know it's phrased in the pop culture zeitgeist now serialized television stories where they have a big overarching story that crosses one season or multiple seasons is the norm. Back when Twin Peaks came out, it wasn't the norm. The only things that did this were soap opera. Um, And yeah, you did have a couple of of primetime soap operas like Dallas, but they were still soap opera. They weren't crime thriller dramas. Um, And that's why Twin Peaks as a TV series also feels very soap opera-ish at times because that was a a mode of storytelling that they were kind of drawing from in order to create this magical, mystical world. Um, and so they, they pulled a lot of those soap opera elements into it, kind of making fun of it. There's a, a sub-TV show inside the TV show called Invitation to Love that is straight parody satire of a real a for real deal soap opera um and twin peaks changed changed the world um it was a huge pop culture thing um during its first season run um what happened to this poor series during season two i'll talk about later when we do the season two episode but it was a pop culture phenomenon. Um, magazine covers, the whole nine. The soundtrack won the Grammy that year, um, which it well deserved because the soundtrack is one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, in my not so humble opinion. Um, and it took a little bit, but basically you, you got the X Files after. You wouldn't have the X Files without Twin Peaks. You wouldn't have the Sopranos without Twin Peaks. A lot of people quote the Sopranos as being the biggest shift to serialized storytelling the the peak tv the uh creator of the sopranos said very directly that he was a majorly influenced by twin peaks um but it's it's funny how all the things that twin peaks influenced came out years and years later because because basically of what happened with season two of twin peaks um it wasn't an immediate cultural shift but now we have so many shows that owe so much to twin peaks um, Riverdale, um, I affectionately call Teen Peaks because it's literally Twin Peaks except all teenagers and uh, they gender swapped the, the, the murdered kid. Um, 
I could go on for, for hours and hours about various aspects of Twin Peaks, but I gave the general idea, the, the basic setup of the series. Um, Corey, how do you want to approach this? Do you want to talk episode to episode or just kind of go a little overarching? I mean, I think since uh, the story is relatively serialized, um, it's just going to be easier to reform talk about whatever comes to mind at the moment. Diane? Yeah. What I have in my hand right now is a box of chocolate bunny. That's a very important quote. I want everyone listening to this to remember that. Diane, I'm holding in my hand a box of chocolate bunnies. Probably one of the most important lines in the whole series. You'll never find out why until much later. Corey, what? there was yeah. fish in the percolator. I was going to, I wanted to comment that's like the best line read. <laughs> it's like the perfect line read. There is a Bullshit. fish. fish. In the percolator. <laughs> he says it so matter-of-factly, like, this is clearly not the first time that's happened to him. <laughs> I love how they call back to it later. He's sitting there scrubbing the percolator, and he sniffs it. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and not just that. Like, they're at the diner, and Cooper and uh, Harry are having a cup of coffee, having a slice of pie, and he's like, still can't get that fish to my mouth. Yeah. This must be where pies go when they die. So uh, one of the things about about Twin Peaks that kills me is how quotable it is. Like most of every line is is just so memorable. Um, you could in any given episode we could sit here and riff quotes for for hours. Um, see, it's it's in season one. There's they even did treat yourself before treat yourself in season one of Twin Peaks, and I find that incredible. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's, uh, so, Corey, yeah. begin us. Yeah, um, I, uh, I really like this first season. I am a big fan of the television medium over movies, usually, uh, because of the way that, uh, you're, you're allowed to, uh, in a, in a couple episodes in, in this series, so far at least, they have set up something, they've dropped this little uh, piece of knowledge, uh, and then several episodes later, they follow up on that. And like in movies, you're not really uh, able to do that unless it's the MCU, where you have several movies to do that. Um, right. but typically, movies are uh, put, put into one thing, and then you move on from it. Well, maybe you don't move on from it, but uh, you get the point. Um, but in, in Twin Peaks, I finally see that like why it, they, why is there a three and a half hour cut of Dune? Why is there a three and a half hour cut of Blue Velvet? It's because David Lynch and his ideas really belong on television. He has a, um, a huge huge uh, idea base for all of these characters and all of these things that are happening. And like Twin Peaks was a movie, you would get at least half the cast, if not like a quarter of the cast, and uh, you would not get nearly as much depth into uh, things like Norma, like we find, we see Norma, I believe, in the first episode, the owner of the diner, and we don't find out that she has a husband who is incarcerated until like they are at his parole hearing in the fifth episode or something. And, like Those are the kinds of things that I really love about television, where we are able to establish ourselves with one character, and then we are able to uh, expand upon that character once we've learned this and that about them. And even if we don't learn anything, we just get this bit of information about what they do. And then we learn more about them. And then we see 
that actually uh, Norma and what is Hank? Hank. Uh, Norma and Hank are uh, also in this very uh, not sexually incestuous, incestuous relationship, but this uh, very within the town incestuous relationship that seems to be going on, where Harry is working with Josie and Josie is working with uh, Ben, and Josie is also working. Or Ben is also working with Catherine against Josie, and then, like, that is the weave of shit that's going on in Twin Peaks. And that is uh, <laughs> what I really like about it. You're able to build that in in seven, seven episodes? Uh, eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that. So, like, what you just talked about there, that's exactly why I got into anime. I could never get into American television um, because, you know, I'm older so I'm from a time period where Twin Peaks hadn't quite changed the world yet. Um, I like the standalone episodes more of the X-Files than I do the uh, mythology episodes of the X-Files because they were it just didn't work for me the way that they were trying to bridge it between seasons. And American TV still, even though after it became serialized, it doesn't really work for me. I like I watch some TV you know, a lot more nowadays. And I like a lot of shows. Like, I don't hate TV. I like a lot of shows. But there's nothing that feels like it genuinely changes me or moves me as a piece of art. Um, But anime always did. So that's why I became an anime fan, because of the serialized storytelling and the setting up and the payoff of characters and the the huge tapestries that they, they work with. That's what that's what I love. Twin Peaks was the first American TV show that I ever saw that gave me that same self uh, sense of satisfaction, that that same uh, feeling of wonder that that anime always gave me. And to think that I've been missing out on it for for twenty odd years when I finally had watched it in uh, two thousand ten or two thousand eleven was the first time I watched it. Um, and, and that's one of the things that Twin Peaks does so very, very well, um, as you were saying, is how it builds the stories for each of the different characters and um, gives them dimension and depth. They're not just, you know, some random character. Like, a lot of American TV still has that problem. You, They create these huge cast of characters, but you don't spend any time with them because the the main storyline follows the main character and so you're you're constantly following the main character in these serialized stories and the cast is just basically filling out the background twin peaks never feels like that you're you're spending time with their individual storylines and getting to know them each as people yeah and it's funny that you mentioned that it wouldn't work as a movie because twin peaks is a movie um when it first came out the pilot was sold to Europe as a film. There's a, a the international pilot that's on the discs is half an hour longer. It wraps up the story, reveals who the killer is, and has a kind of conclusion. And it's very unsatisfying. Um, <laughs> it's it, they they took they took that footage, the footage from that extra half hour, and transformed it into parts of Cooper's dream sequence in episode two. Um, you know, the, the episode where he dreams about the Red Room with the dwarf. Yep. Um, the footage with Mike and Bob giving their monologues in the what looks like a, a boiler room. 
those are that footage is taken from that ending on the international pilot. Um, so he was able to reincorporate some of that footage and build something greater. But as that standalone film, you get the pilot without uh, it, it. It skips Jacoby taking the necklace from under the rock. It cuts that part out and goes straight into this conclusion where there's a final showdown and they find the killer um, Bob. It's not a spoiler, really. You could say it's a spoiler, but then you haven't watched season two. <laughs> um, and it just it's not satisfying. It doesn't. It do, it works as an individual piece, but you can feel this quality shift from that first hour and a half of greatness to just yep, they're finishing things off here, and it's it's poop. I mean, obviously, we I did not watch the international pilot, nor I mean, I think it'll be probably at, at some point something I watch, but I wanted to just kind of rave about the pilot. Uh, it's like the the introduction to this this universe um, and establishing everything. Um, I think it's you know the double the classic double length episode to to set the stage um, and it really just introduces you to everybody but it doesn't leave you with any conclusions it makes you say okay I have to see what the, what's up with all these people like and it's a real strength that television has um, when you want a large cast of characters I mean unless you're doing a, a long series with two and a half, three hour films like Lord of the Rings or something, it's just so hard to introduce a narrative structure that allows you to really expand the cast outside of a, a very narrow window. Um, and I would absolutely agree in terms of watching television. It's why I, I, when I was growing up and I found anime, I was like, what is like, this is, you know, every, I got to tune into every episode. There's all these characters all over the place. I didn't, I mean, it was, you know, not even a teenager, and I didn't quite grasp exactly what the appeal was, but that was, had to be like the biggest appeal um, beyond the fact that it looked awesome. You know, like you know, you grew up on Hanna Barbera cartoons, and then you see this, and it's like gonna blow your mind. Um, <laughs> which is what Twin Peaks really must have been for a lot of people who are you know just watching police procedurals. And I mean, I think '80s TV was a lot of you know happy family sitcoms in towns like Twin Peaks, mind you. Like you know, you know they they. Turn, they kind of turned that on on its head. Not I don't not as deliberately and overtly as Blue Velvet was as a film, but it was still the same kind of concept. You know, years of these TV shows and pieces of media showing idyllic towns, you know, with low stakes adventures that were at hand. And then David Lynch is making these pieces of media that are these are these are very high stakes. I mean, people are legitimately dead. And on top of that, there's all these other people in the town with just, especially in Twin Peaks, with just all these outsized motivations and who's, I, it feels very accurate to say who's screwing who in terms of Twin Peaks. <laughs> both, both sexually and figuratively. Yes, yes, I was going to say, in every con, in every use of the word screw, it's that's that's the town of Twin Peaks. <laughs> um and it just must have been so radical to people turning tuning into this show, um, especially. And it, you're right. I was trying to piece like I know the X Files came in shortly thereafter, kind of the bridge. Beyond that, you had um, to some capacity Star Trek: The Next Generation did some carryovers of plot points and characters, but I mean it wasn't really until '94, '95 that you start seeing a lot of serialized dramas show up. And they weren't on network TV for the most part. Um, and then eventually, I think that that kind of serialized really, you know, merging the, the serial drama with, you know, 
surrealism and and the wide cast of characters you kind of don't know exactly what each person's motivation is and there's you know not rushing to conclusions that really took off with the sopranos i think and that was that started in what 99 i thought it was 98 but it could have been it was very end of the decade so you basically have twin peaks at the very start of this decade and nothing really adapts the lessons of twin peaks and tries to do what they were trying to do until hbo goes okay you know hbo really leans in on on almost making shows like twin peaks um, I'm sure there I might be forgetting one or two that happened in between, but The Sopranos was the big hit, and that after The Sopranos, everything on TV changed. Um, a couple years later, ABC went back into the the serialized drama game with Lost, and I mean, really, the last 15 years, 20 years of American TV can owe a lot what Twin Peaks tried to do and the influence it had, um, and it's really incredible because it just feels like US TV especially on networks, was just so obtuse to taking chances. Um, everything, you know, sitcoms were super safe and sterile in the 80s, um, and it wasn't until cable started kind of pushing the networks to, to have to try new things But in the 90s that they tried new things, but it's just funny because before all of that, David Lynch goes, hey, here's Twin Peaks, this is really what you guys should be doing on TV, and they didn't pick up the lessons for for a decade <laughs> yeah uh can we, i mean ABC, uh, sopranos. Yeah, sopranos was uh, the one that 1999 1999 okay january 1999, so, filmed, so okay so filmed in 98 and yeah. probably pitched in 97 yeah oh, okay so yeah i mean bookend of the whole decade i mean it's kind of funny i like i i remember when i was younger there was talk of abc as a network basically being dead like they had no shows anybody watched um but you look at this, the kind of the people that crossed paths on the network during the, the 90s, and it's like a who's who of people who went on to make a lot, a lot of people who went on to make some really landmark TV shows. Um, um, what's, what was his show before The West Wing? Um, Sports Night was on um, uh, ABC, I think, and then you know they canceled it, and he went and pitched The West Wing to NBC, and all the worst people in the world find that the greatest television show ever. <laughs> um, I still have never seen an episode. Nope, neither have I. Um, I have not either. But um, <laughs> um, but I, it you know I, talking about that and just its its legacy. It's just it's just wild to to think that not just like sometimes people say oh yeah this this was like the radical influence on a generation of people. Um, I think you know punk rock you know everybody's like well the sex pistols were the radical influence on all the british punk scene and, and post-punk bands um but and this may be a a hot take but i mean all the bands that succeeded the sex pistols i think are better than the sex pistols whereas like <laughs> the, the shows that is, have seemed to have succeeded twin peaks like i have not delved dove into the full second season yet but i mean this first season is as good as any other television that's ever been produced it's just mm-hmm. incredible like the characters are amazing the way that they're all given the way that they're all just given the backstories that you're slowly learning more about um and there's no rush to do it um to tell you what each person's motivation is because they're just so captivating on their own i mean like we mentioned him earlier, but Pete is just the best, best damn character <laughs> there is. Pete is the only character that doesn't have some kind of bad shady side to him. 
Literally, he is the only character that is just pure. I have in my notes <laughs> that Pete is too good for this town. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like it's like it's like he got lost and wound up in the wrong town. But he's like the native like lump like he's like the is he he's like the native lumberjack, and everybody else in the town's like out to you know rob the town blind, or they have you know they're they're associated with bad people, and he's just like straight as an arrow. The you know just does his thing, and his wife's a horrible person, but he stands by her. What a guy. I see Jack Vance. She's my I wife. Know. Jack Vance. My wife. My wife. <laughs> uh, go back to, uh, like, your uh, treatise on television. Uh, DS9 was 1993, and I think that is also pretty Twin peaks Like, I'd be, I'd be surprised if yeah. they, they were not influenced by that. Uh, and it has... Ba- this, Babylon 5 as well, I would assume. Uh, it's... Uh, Big overarching story of DS9, the war between, I forget what they're called, Bajorians and the other people. Uh, but yeah. And it also has like these weird dream sequences with Ogo and Cisco and stuff. Uh, but as far as the, like, the, the greatness of the, especially the pilot, um, since there is a pilot and then there is a first episode which confused me and then Chris fucked with me for a bit and was like, oh, that's just David Lynch. Uh, we, it takes like 30, 30 minutes uh, of the, uh, what hour and a half long pilot to even meet Cooper and like that is another um, another thing that about television and about the series that I really like like where we first see um, Lawrence body in the lake you get a, you get a call from uh, from the police saying this is happening Leeling is in the middle of a business deal and he obviously cannot finish that um, there's just random Norwegians there that we don't know what's going on with them. Um, the Norwegians are leaving! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Laura's parents don't seem concerned at all that Laura was missing all night, saying she's probably with Bobby. Um, but then you see Bobby, and he's just an absolute idiot. <laughs> uh, he's caught up in, in all of these things. We don't even know the extent of it uh, now, but he is dealing drugs over the border from uh, from Leo um, and the Renaults, the French-Canadians, who don't seem that much smarter than Bobby. Um, but we go through like this whole cast of characters from the town before even seeing Kyle McLaughlin at all. And then we finally see him. He uh, falls in love with the, with the trees. He asks about them. And then uh, straight from there, uh, Douglas Furs to Can I See the Optopy Report? <laughs> I love that whole thing. He's, he, he's sitting there, he's walking, he's like, look, Sheriff, you know, want to get some things straight right away. When the federal, get, you know, when the Bureau gets called in, we're in charge. You work for me. I know local law enforcement has a lot of problems with that. I just want to make sure that we're okay. And, he, and, you know, something to that effect. And then Truman, Harry, replies, like I said, we're happy to have you here. Without missing a beat, he just raises his hands like, Sheriff, you've got to tell me what kind of magnificent trees have you got growing around here? And then, it, as soon as he tells him, Douglas Furs, Douglas Furs, take me to the autopsy room. So it's not just that 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 end; it's the beginning part too. It's just this beautiful piece that's just like shoved in there. That <laughs> yeah. oh my god. Yeah, and the matter of factness in which Harry talks. We later on we get. Uh, I just need a place to sleep and uh, whatever else he said. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, reasonable price. Reasonably priced. Uh, I can set you up at the whatever inn. The Great Northern. Great North. He's like, now I need it to be all of these things, Harry. I can get you a great rig at the Great North. 
I I love Dale's just overall like the 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 op like there's just the perpetual peppy optimism in the face of the fact that his job is just exposing him to just dark seedy dep- things that could make anybody you know sad and depressed and he's like that is he's like just raves about coffee you know good pie you know recommends like recommends pies to people in town like <laughs> the lamplighter in. The if, you lamp to, if you get a chance to come up by this way, you're gonna have to stop by a piece of that magnificent pie. <laughs> just it just just overwhelming positivity that he has, and it runs works in such stark contrast to, I mean, excluding Pete, everybody else in the town. There's clearly something that we're not exposed to about them. Um, you know, so everybody's got this just the dark side of them. There's something that is preventing them from being happy. Um, and then you see Dale, who, you know, for whatever reason, like for every reason, he's capable of having this happiness, this genuine like enjoyment and happiness in his life. Um, which, I mean, it's so it's really hard to do. I, I'll 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 say like in terms of a, a narrative structure to have someone like Dale balance like balance out everything with without him feeling out of place like he feels like he belongs in twin peaks but he's also because he's deliberately pointed to as an outsider i think it works that this guy is allowed to be the positive positive reinforcement guy the guy who's fascinated by trees and coffee and all the simple things in the world um well you inadvertently make another great point about the series as a whole and it's something that only david lynch is able to do i find like it other directors and filmmakers have have done it, but nobody does it as well as David Lynch, and it's that balance. He's able to to make everything feel organic. He's balancing between light and dark, negativity and positivity, um, quirkiness, dead seriousness, murder, pie eating, all these crazy elements put together, but none of it feels off. It doesn't feel like you're getting this tonal whiplash. It doesn't feel like you're bouncing between all these dif- uh, deferring elements uh, like a pinball m- machine. It feels organic. It feels true. Um, and that's something that I've, I've only been able to experience through David Lynch's work to this level of perfection. And he does it the best in Twin Peaks. You know, you, you get the balance in, in Blue Velvet but it's much, much more of a dark film. It's it's overall a dark film, but you're able to have Jeffrey exist within that world, but then you know the world changes him. It works in its own way. Here, it's just kind of all over the map, and it still feels normal. Strangely enough, it feels normal. I think what really helps with that is that we, uh, we start with kind of a happy-go-lucky town, seeing uh people not really care that laura's missing and like we skip from the seriousness of finding out that laura is murdered to cooper who is just talking into a tape recorder to a uh faceless uh diane faceless formless diane that he needs to do this and that um and that really lightens the mood and sets the stage for uh, what kind of television show this is going to be, and also the soundtrack really helps because it's... it's the soundtrack's the best soundtrack. Like, you could put to a show like this from the very first key of the ver- of the intro theme song all the way through. It's such an amazing soundtrack. My Hands down, my favorite score. I listen to it uh, regularly. Zero percent surprise. 
<laughs> to no one's surprise. Yeah, no, I, I I just put on the soundtrack to Twin Peaks occasionally. I have it on vinyl too. We don't go there. <laughs> I I would I want to say I also like want like the way that some of the stuff is filmed itself. It's borrowing from so many other genres and styles. I thought was it the third at the end of the third episode when um who's it i forget um they're walking in the woods um and um who's well i forget i forget just walking in the woods but there's it's they're holding flashlights and it's just done in this like haunting slasher film like yeah that's looks that's like, mike and bobby going to meet leo mike and bobby yeah that's right mike and bobby going to meet meet um meet leo yeah and it's just done it's like it's like you're expecting someone to jump out behind them the whole time because you just have the instinctual sense from watching really anything else when you see you know oh it's dark we get these like shaky jet jittery flashlights like something's gonna jump out the whole time it just like keeps the way that he's able to they're they're able this show is able to raise tension even un, i don't want to say unnecessarily but even if the payoff isn't happening yet it just like you know it's adding more tension that you just sit with and you have to take it to the next episode or you have to take it to a later scene um and then sometimes he pays you off right away. I because um, there's a scene, episode five. Bobby and Shelly are in Shelly and Leo's house, and they're like, "What's going to happen if Leo shows up?" And you're like, and they're like super tense because you're like, "Oh my god, they might like have to shoot Leo if he shows up or something." And then you know, just as you think something is, the tension's ratcheting up to that point, you hear a door open and you like jump out of your seat, and it's just Dale and uh, Harry walking, like opening the door to the. Uh, <laughs> police station is it's a scene transition and it's just like the most crafty scene transition you can do i'm like i just like stuck with me immediately i was like that is brilliant work like it's just like the little things in this show are are if you know if i were to watch season one again i'd pick up on on dozens of other things like those two particular items that stuck out to me and just how the tension is ratcheted up and paid off and, and you're tricked as the viewer into being like oh i was tense for no reason yeah and there's another moment later on when bobby and shelly are still together again in shelly's house and uh they ask again what would you do if leo comes in and bobby picks up the gun that shelly got and he's like hey leo how's it going what are we gonna do here and I'm like, then mind shooting him <laughs> as if Acting like bobby would ass. ever do any of those things <laughs> Well, it, 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 the, the best part about that scene, you know, he's acting all badass, like, oh, Leo, I'm going to shoot you, blah, blah, blah. Then the, the, the there's a knock at the door. It's Andy. Yeah, and yeah. As soon as the door the, the, the knock on the door happens, Bobby's like, oh, God. He turns into a scared little baby that he is. God, Bobby and Shelly, it's a mess. Um, I did have in my notes, they had uh, in episode one, uh, or the second episode, whatever we would like to call it, um, we find out yeah, that so let's pause real quick to, to explain how we're do- talking about that to the to the listeners. On the discs, the way that the discs are organized, it has the pilot episode, and then it starts over at episode one. But if you're watching it on, like, Netflix or something, the pilot is episode one. So... Oh, yeah. Sorry. I Yeah, I called the pilot. I was going... So it's episode... My mind were, would be if you're on the disc two and four or the episodes I was talking about. Yeah, so it gets very confusing to talk about it because when you're watching it on Netflix or on Vudu or something like that, it just runs episodes one through eight, whereas on the discs it goes pilot and then episodes one through seven. Yeah, I'm obviously playing off of the discs here, which is why I'm bringing this out well. Sorry, continue, Corey. Uh, yeah, so 
episode one on the guest. <laughs> we find out that Bobby owes Leo $10,000, but we don't really find out why. And that's like another thing that I really like about this is that we we get this piece of information and then uh, where even is the fact that we find out that Bobby is selling cocaine. Um, they, the next episode, we find out that Bobby and his friend are buying drugs from Leo. Um, and then we kind of put it together that like, oh, they owe 10 grand to Leo for buying these drugs and having never sold them. And then that really pays off in the last episode when Bobby dumps a bag of cocaine into James' motorcycle, which the cops later found uh, in the motorcycle. And they're like, what was this doing in your bike? Um, and at this point, they figure out that whoever, uh, or that Leo was selling drugs through a high school in So the, the uh, webs are coming together. <laughs> sort of. Which it's funny that when uh, Bobby puts the cocaine in James's gas tank, this is where my I haven't watched all the classic films like hinders me. Um, Bobby calls the cops and pretends to be Leo Johnson and says that uh, James is an easy rider. And for some reason, Harry and D- and Cooper knew instinctively that that meant look inside the gas tank for cocaine. Um, oh, that's <laughs> which I why they. Yeah, I still haven't seen Easy Rider, so I don't know how that comes into play in the movie or whatnot. So I feel I feel naked there, but yeah, that's how they knew how to look. I've also Easy Rider. I assume he put something in there that would like you know, the gas would disintegrate this bag and then it would explode, <laughs> like sugar in the gas tank. Yeah, that's actually what I thought he was doing. It was going to be something like, and, and we're almost like tricked into thinking that's what he's doing. I think as to and to an extent. That he's putting something that's you know gonna cause oh, physical yeah. bodily harm, yeah. you know, explosion or some something, or, or cause the bike to just been out of control. Um, all right, so we've maybe talked about half the characters. <laughs> Should we get into some of these other ones? Yeah, I, I want to talk about Audrey Horn because uh, some of your your comments that you wrote down on your list, Corey, I, I think are, are interesting observations. Um, I find Audrey a uh, incredibly interesting character. Um, she does not seem to like Twin Peaks, or at least not seem to like her life, Twin Peaks, uh, as she wants to be mischievous in literally any way that she can. She is the one that tells, uh, the Norwegians that someone died in this town. They're trying to solve it, which sent the Norwegians away. Um, and then later on, she, uh, cons her dad into getting her a job at the department store and says she wants to work from the bottom and go to the top, and then... Um, she cons the person <laughs> that is uh, assigning her a spot into putting her at the perfume counter by saying, look, I could tear my dress right now and run out and say that you made a move on me. What's going to happen then? Um, oh, and in between that, not in between that, even before all of that, she shows up naked in Cooper's bag. And <laughs> like, what is happening with Audrey's entire character? Um but Audrey also seems to be the person that we're finding out a lot of the good stuff about about Laura through, or at least she's the one that I made the most comparisons to, because uh, as we learn more and more about Laura's character, uh, who is obviously dead, we find out that maybe uh, Audrey is a better person than Laura, or at least someone with fewer mental health issues than Laura. Um, because I have no idea what is going on with Laura, but she seemed to be dating, uh, Bobby, James, and Dr. Jacoby, and Dr. Jacoby is this weird psychologist who wants to stroke the underskirt of a hula tie. 
Dr. Jacoby. Just to, just to, just to throw in here, just because uh, Laura was not dating Dr. Jacoby, she was seeing him as a patient. I would not be surprised if it's both. I would not be surprised either, but it is never revealed that she was in a relationship with him. I would, will bounce off of that with, with Audrey as really a captain. Probably of all the, the, the kids in town, she's the most captivating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to, t- I think it's, it's, we're, we're kind of, I think implied at first, like, hey, here's this, she's like the, the rich kid who doesn't really, you know, need to care about anything in town, and it's kind of played against your expectations. As more and more gets revealed, I, I think it's pretty clear that she wants nothing to do with Twin Peaks because she knows the town is rotten to the core, um, and that's why she's in a, perhaps a, a bit of a brat or, um, mischievous, um, it's, not due to some nature to undermine good people. It's because she just, you know, think knows all these people's dark secrets or wants to find them out. And she sure succeeds at that. Yeah. She's, she's, she's one of my favorite characters. It's not Cooper. Um, the whole bit where she winds up naked in Cooper's bed in his hotel room. That is such one of the, the best scenes. And it opens the, the episode, um, with this great dialogue where Cooper is, is talking to Audrey and he's telling her, he's like, you know, what I want and what I need are two very different things. What you need right now is a friend, someone who will listen. You know, let me go get a couple of malts and some fries and tell me all your troubles. Um, that is is one of the defining moments of the show for me because it really opens up Audrey's vulnerability and shows, you know, just how kind-hearted cooper is like you know that cooper has a thing for audrey um their their interactions previously up to that point are very flirtatious uh cooper even at one point goes audrey how old are you and she's like 18 and he's just kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> sure you are um no I, I i take it as more of a mm-hmm and uh but when presented with that situation cooper's not going to take advantage of her you know, she's in an emotionally vulnerable place and she's dealing with a lot on her own. You know, the, the impact of Laura's death is revealing so much about the town that she thought she knew. It's revealing more about her father that she never knew. Um, and that's one thing that the show doesn't really uh, show us through m- most of the other characters is how Laura's death modifies the perception of the town um we get we get laura's funeral when bobby has his outburst talking about how everybody knew that she was in trouble but nobody helped her um so in that way we we all killed her um but it's really it's really audrey's character that's kind of personally shaken and changes because of the way that laura's death has what 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 laura's death has revealed about the town and I love that about her character. I love that she is the sexy one. You know, she's the very uh, flirtatious, uh, the vixen type character, but she's not exploited. Uh, she's not, what's the proper way to say this? She's not treated as 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 a slut, or if you will. You know, she's not that type of character. She's just a flirtatious, openly sexual persona. Um, and it's not a negative light. It's not a stereotypical light. I just, I love Audrey. And, 
in season two, we'll talk more about that. But also want to talk a bit about, especially since you mentioned people's reactions, the not so much the pilot, because that's like the immediate shock for both Laura's parents, but the way that they're kind of processing and handling the grief f- throughout the rest of the season, um, especially after her funeral, when it almost seems like the rest of the town just has moved on. And, and um, um, Audrey's father, uh, Mr. Horn, I forget his first name right now. Leland Palmer. Oh, no, Ben Horn. Sorry. Ben Horn, that's, that's it, Ben Horn, yeah. Um, he, uh, like, it basically is done with Leland. Like, this guy's of no use to me in business anymore because he is, you know, he wasn't able to wake up the next, the day after his daughter was discovered dead and just come back to work like a normal human being. Like, like it's almost, like, so callous. And, and so Leland is... is I, I get the sense it just feels like totally alone and ignored in the world, and it and it's really like an interesting and, and a very thoughtful approach to how people handle their grief with his character. It just is like it, it very visibly a broken broken man, um, and is treated less like someone that we need to care about and more like go away, dude. Like you're just an inconvenience to all of us. The funeral's over. Get over it. Um, because the whole town is very clearly has their own things that they care a lot more about, um, than, you know, you know, they're just, they're all, they're all either moving on or they're obsessed or, you know, if they're the kids, they're obsessed with, with the murder, but for different reasons, um, they're, they're running their like own investigation or they're, you know, or they're Bobby, they're just, they're just like falling apart at the seams, um, and you know the whole town's kind of imploding on itself but it's less be- but at the same time that's happening you have these who need like the, the sense of community in their life and the sense of community is not there uh, and i think it's a really powerful way to approach their grief um because I mean, it literally like it just seems nobody cares about them even their niece who comes into town for the funeral is is less and in, less interested in being there for them and more interested in, in getting up to fun teenage hijinks <laughs> as a murder investigation. <laughs> yeah, immediately. I love that. Yeah, immediately jumps in with Bobby and Donna, not Bobby, uh, yeah. James and Donna, and like, all right, solve this mystery. Where's your Where's your van? Where's the dog? I I was gonna say I was gonna say it's like they just like immediately like just build the grab the mystery machine and go when she gets to town. <laughs> oh good. I love Maddie. Great character. It, it, I, I love Cheryl Lee. Cheryl Lee is the actress who plays both Maddie and Laura Palmer. Um, I just love Cheryl Lee. Um, what an incredible actress. I'll get to that later. Sorry. It's it's hard to, to try to restrain thoughts and feelings uh, for me because I, I have seen the series and the movie well over, you know, 10, 11, 12 times um, at this point. You know, it's all this this one big massive story for me at this uh, at this point juncture yeah i i think uh surely uh laura and audrey are the very interesting contrasting characters audrey seemingly trying to go through the same steps of life that laura did by the end of the show um she not only cons her way into the perfume counter where laura worked but she also cons her way into um one-eyed jacks where it's the uh uh, a gentleman's club, for for lack of a better term, le- uh, slash casino. Um, brothel, brothel is legit. Yeah. Uh, brothel slash casino, where Laura seemed to, uh, if not work, be displayed there in in the magazine. Um, 
and comically we find that Audrey is uh, has also ended up working here and Ben, the owner of this this establishment and also Audrey's father, is her first customer. Ew. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be wonderful. Yeah. 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 Um, the whole one-eyed jacks thing is quite inconsistent. I think one-eyed jacks, and this is a David Lynch thing. The just use of red as a color uh, is really it, he uses especially red drapes, mm-hmm. um, and they're all over. You know, when you're looking in one-eyed jacks um, in the back room, there's red drapes, and it's like it's always a sign that something unseemly is happening. And it just like triggers, I think, an emotion with you. Like this is an uneasy place, but we're not going to get into why it's uneasy yet. Besides the fact that it's clearly a brothel. But I mean, they have a, a bunch, a bunch of uh, uh, red in Cooper's dreams, where mm-hmm. where he sees the um, the person in his dreams that talks backwards, but also talks forwards, and it sounds kind of weird. Uh, if I remember, Chris, you explained to me once that they uh, said the line backwards and then played it back backwards which then came out forwards ish that's correct yeah so in the the red room dream sequence you know you hear them talking you know they are kind of talking like this and what they did was they learned how to speak their lines backwards they filmed the scene with everybody moving and speaking backwards and so when you're watching the footage it is that footage in reverse so it plays forwards um and that's what creates that stilted sound in their voice and the the weird uh, movements that they make. Yeah, but uh, yeah, a lot of red there, and I I think yeah, it's trying to give you this sense of unease or just that something is not okay here. Uh, if you didn't already get it by the the backwards forwards talking. <laughs> so I want to I want to stop and talk about that. So that. David Lynch only directed two episodes this season, the pilot and episode two, which is the, the episode with the dream sequence. Um, first off, is everybody else's favorite thing in the whole world where Cooper talks about Tibet and throws rocks at a glass bottle? 60 feet, 6 inches, the mound, or the distance between the mound and the plate in baseball. Perfect. I Yeah, I that was... So just just broadly saying that was the, the most standout episode of them for me mm-hmm. and, and what, what what is the dream sequence how do you guys feel about that whole thing it's equal parts kind of haunting but it's and you know it's unsettling but lynch has this way whenever anything is supposed to be unsettling he puts in just a tad bit of humor so you're like maybe i can laugh at this too because it's mm-hmm. just so unsettling yeah and I like the uh, I like the contrast between Cooper and James and Donna as they try to both solve the murder in their own ways. Where Cooper is having dreams and being like, "I had a dream about Tibet. We have to we have to throw rocks at a bottle." Um, <clears throat> but then we get to James and Donna, who seem to be going through uh, the actual police methods of solving a murder, where they. Uh, find out about this thing they listen to these tapes they break into jacoby's office where like they are teenagers and not are not able to go through proper channels to do some of these investigations they are going about it in a much more scientific method than cooper's dream <laughs> i love it when, when harry pulls cooper aside he's like so tell me 
the idea for this really came to you in a dream and Cooper's face just softens and he looks at him and he smiles and he just yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like he's so proud of himself for his ideas that that are clearly absurd and come come from his dreams if he's always like this is genius because it came from my dream um, and now I, I love the end of that third episode where he's like, I just found the killer because I just imagined like someone watching that and then having to wait, wait a week and be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then like they get to the next episode. He's like, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. He's <laughs> like, no, it can wait. Next episode. Yeah, no, I forgot. <laughs> That's that is nineteen ninety level television trolling. If that is a good way to phrase it, yeah. I just don't, like you have to. You are waiting a week to get this answer. Watching a show that is unlike any much just about anything you've watched, um, in, especially in terms of, of crime drama. I mean, just this serialized crime drama. You know, in the way that he's playing with the, the entire expectations of the audience by nineteen ninety standards is excellent. Um, mm-hmm. Now we. Ex- now we'd be like, yeah, yeah. Now, now if it happened, you know, if, if an episode ended of a popular show now, and they're like, hey, I discovered the killer. I'll tell you when we meet for breakfast. Everybody online would be like, nah, he's, it's not happening. He didn't. He doesn't know the answer. <laughs> it's going to be a bait and switch. I think uh, this show or television shows um, are meant to be watched week to week like this, um, or at least like give you some time between episodes, like Chris. Uh, you have watched it a dozen, a dozen times, so I'm sure you've watched it both with uh, some time between episodes and also just sitting down and watching all these episodes at once. But uh, I have. I think my record is like, I think I finished the whole thing in four days once. <laughs> uh, but Chris, what, did you give you time between each episode, or did you like just marathon through them? We, the most we watched was two at a time, and I, I did not like that. <laughs> I only watched two episodes. I bought, it was one a day, basically. I watched the pilot, and then I actually took like a week, like three or four days off, because I watched the pilot at the very early part of June, um, um, kind of right after our last recording. And then, because um, I it was like, I don't want to run into a situation where I have to watch seven episodes on the Saturday before we record, because I'm probably just <laughs> yeah. not going to like the show at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, just make it feel like work. So I, I made a point. I tried to watch the one episode a night, you know, a couple on uh, a couple weeknights. Um, so, yeah, I watched it that way. You know, maybe a day or t- like most days in between episodes were were like two or three, mm-hmm. um, which is a decent amount of time to wait. Um, but, yeah, I watched, you know, two in a row. The last seven episodes, the, the last two episodes of the season I watched in one sitting. Um, which was as much, you know, a matter of me saying, like, all right, I, I'm at the end. Like, let me just get these two done with. So in case anything comes up the next three or four days, I don't have to squeeze in time to watch it. Um, well, and those two, ep- those last two episodes play so well together. Yeah. I, so one of the things that's interesting about the structure of the show is every episode is a day. Yes. I, I don't know if anyone else noticed that, but every episode is a day. Um, but the last two episodes, that all happens in one night. Yeah. We end end that second-to-last episode with James and Donna breaking into Jacoby's office, and Bobby dumps the cocaine in um, James' motorcycle, and then we pick up right right there on the next episode. Mm -hmm. So so those those last two episodes, they work so well as just marathoning them. Um, However, for me, I end up... 
I, I restricted myself this time, and it was very difficult to do so. I just want you to know, Corey, that I put in an extreme amount of restraint and effort to not watch the season two pilot because I get I still even though I've seen it a million times I still get emotional at the end of the final episode of season one and I know how amazing the season two pilot is so I just like always dive right into that um and then I slow back down uh this time this time I watched one or two episodes over the course of two weeks um tried to tried to really pace myself uh you know, I, I I think I think it can be watched either way. Personally, um, I like watching a bunch of episodes all in a row. I'll watch like four or five um, some some days just because I get so engrossed into the series. Yeah, and I think what you what you're really missing when you watch watch them all at once, each episode tends to have like a big overarching theme going with it, and episode episode that's not always consistent. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I really like about. Again, that's what I really, really like about television. Um, and uh, I think that when we talk about television nowadays, that is serialized, quote-unquote, uh, like stuff like Breaking Bad, obviously, uh, does that kind of thing. And uh, what was the other, like, modern television that is very good? I don't know. Whatever. The, the very, very good television knows how to do it, where you have an overarching story, and you can do this episode-by-episode episode storytelling of it, but then we have stuff like uh, Marvel's television shows, which seem to be uh, a couple episodes, and then the last episodes are just a very long movie. And they don't really... Under- like, they take the idea that there should be an overarching story, and they don't take anything else from how that should be done, uh, much like the Star Wars Heroes Journey thing. So they take the, the key Star Wars things, but they never read the Heroes Journey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the the Marvel TV shows, as much as I've enjoyed them so far, and I'm quite enjoying Loki, um, they're just one big movie that's cut into chunks. Mm-hmm. Yep, I I I agree. And it it's if you can do you can do a lot more with television. You don't have to do the the movie. Yeah, and the, one, know, just the long movie. WandaVision first three episodes were peak that 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 was what I wanted and expected out of that television. It's really really good. Yeah. And that became a movie for the. Re- yes. Yeah. It's interesting that we we talk about that now because Twin Peaks: The Return um, is by David Lynch's own statement in an 18 hour movie that is just cut up into chunks. Um, that's why they they are called parts instead of episodes. Um, and it's also not season three of Twin Peaks. It's Twin Peaks: The Return, a limited event series. Corey. But the way that David Lynch um, paced and structured the return, each part still plays like its own self-encapsulating item um, with with its own themes and its own approaches to um, overarching uh, theme and story, as as well as being a piece of this larger puzzle. Um, David Lynch does that so super, super well, so... When, when, when we get to the return, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about, that you could, you could watch it as one big movie that's just cut up into chunks, but the way that those chunks are cut up makes such perfect sense um, for so many different reasons, and it's, it's an act of beauty, um, and that's something that a lot of TV doesn't really do for me. Just seeing what slash who we have not talked about yet. Um, Josie, you haven't talked about Josie too much. We haven't talked about Lucy at all, have we? 
No, <laughs> Lucy. Oh, oh my God. Lucy. I love Lucy. Yeah, she's the she's the other like just beaming positivity person at the you know the police barracks, police off police station, and it's like it's it's in good contrast to the fact that you only ever see her being like you know being around when they're doing the police business, which is supposed to be them investigating the murder, but for some reason they. The investigation involves donuts and all sorts of other things. Well, donuts are the it's it's how you function in a police police work environment. You have to have them, or else you can't you can't find that motivation. You're not getting that fuel. Donuts and coffee. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. Um, uh, yeah, I I like uh, this character generally because she, like when we first introduced her to her, we kind of get an impression from uh, the generic blonde white woman uh, look of her and also the the higher pitched voice that seems to suggest that she is maybe not as smart as uh, she tries to put off. But uh, as we learn more and more in the series, she is actually incredibly smart. And at one point, uh, after the dream sequence, she is reading a giant book on Tibet. So she, uh, at the very least, wants to do well and wants to do her her job well, and she seems to be very caring also, because she places all this giant smorgasbord of donuts out every morning, and like the, I don't know, F or G story of Lucy and, um... Their cop. Um, oh yeah, the other, the, the cop, that Andy, yeah. And, that, yeah, uh, Andy's uh, the very bump, kind of the bumbling cop. <laughs> yeah, Lucy and Andy, um, I like their, their playing off each other, we know that they're dating and stuff, and we, uh... We just don't know what quite what's going on with them until the last couple episodes when Lucy reveals that she is pregnant and Andy does not seem to know how to process this information. Um, I was going to say about um, Lucy also, like you, you indicated, you know, she's really smart. She's she's well, she's she's reading at the the desk and when she's not doing other work. Um, I also noticed like she seems very just organically part of the investigations she overhears things yeah. she relays messages um you know and you know overall it's it's like she's clearly very smart and again playing with expectations to a character that i think in a lot of other shows is treated either it's just you know an afterthought or you know you know the attractive lady at the desk that we're just going to have here um which again is just another very smart thing that this this show is doing um trying to think of i mean and we, we talked about uh we mentioned josie another extremely interesting character that i i'm looking forward to learning a lot more about um she's playing multiple sides it would seem um in terms of her relationships um at yeah, least she's like four peaks <laughs> yeah yeah right now i mean even now it's it's you know after after the the first season you're not really given a full perspective on who she, who's like, what her actual end goal is, um, and I guess in some way whether she's a good person or a bad person, um, in terms of her actual core motivation. Um, but yeah, I mean it's all over the place what she's what she's doing, um, and it's really really interesting. Um, Pete's there to help her out um, when she needs Pete, um, and she you know is close with Doctor with the with the, not Doctor Harry. Um, Harry Truman. Um, Harry S. Truman. Harry S. Truman. Yeah, that, 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 that should be easy. simple to remember. That should be simple <laughs> to remember. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but then there's also other side relationship with um, Ben Horn. Uh, it's really you know what exactly is game is she playing? Really interesting character that we 
the show does not give a lot away about early on, which is wonderful. Um, super important in, in storytelling of that's of this nature, not to play all the cards right away. Yeah, yeah, I like uh, I like Josie as the only uh, non-white person in this cast. Uh, but also, her, yeah, as you were saying, her story is extremely interesting. She was uh, married to the the former Packard owner, who seems to be much older than her. And now she is in this relationship with Harry and uh, feeding some information to Harry, but also receiving information from Ben about Catherine, who is sleeping with Ben, uh, and they are not married either. Um, they are having an affair with each other, and just very... Uh, I wrote several times that this town is very incestuous, um, and I mean that in any way that I can possibly... Like you said at the beginning, everybody's screwing everybody. Yeah. So one thing, one thing, a couple of questions that I want to ask the two of you... Um, first, I'm curious, who do you think killed Laura Palmer? The whole town did, to quote. Amen! To roughly <laughs> quote Bobby. Amen! Uh, I, I don't know, like, I will be honest, like, at first it's like, uh, you know, mystery, I'll probably get invested in, in figuring out who the killer is, but it's just like, do, it's, it's it, in, in a sense, it's almost like I don't care who, who killed laura palmer it seems so secondary to everything else that i want to find out about twin peaks yeah and i think the show does a really good job at uh centering the story around uh laura palmer but like really the the if this kind of differentiation makes sense the story is about who killed laura palmer but the plot is just about this town of twin who is all involved in, around the death of laura palmer and uh, yeah, I don't. I also have no idea who would do it. The um, the obvious signs point to Leo, but I doubt he is smart enough slash cares enough to do that. I would not be surprised if it's just someone who we have not. Met. I would think I would wager it's someone we've met, but um, and maybe someone we've seen a lot of. But no, I don't think it's anybody we've seen a lot of. Now that I think about it a little more, it's hard. It's hard to say. Yeah, Leo's the guy that they basically you know are spending this whole first season trying to pin pin it down on like make you think that's the guy they need to pin down um and then some twists come in and they're like actually you know it may have been someone else and um maybe it was renault and then they meet renault and it's there's another renault brother so renault brothers yeah Yeah. um it's overall i don't i mean of all the main i don't think any of the main characters did it if if any of the main characters did it i would have to say it was bobby um because he's just like clearly going into mania but i think that's less induced by having a guilty conscience over killing someone and a lot more induced by the fact that all the just the stress and anger of the entire world that kind of he claims laura dragged him into is bubbling over and he just has snapped yeah so yeah being dragged into that world so laura could get cocaine for herself uh, yeah. Thanks, Bobby's answer. See, I, lo- I, lo- I love, I love, the way that you guys first answered the question because that that shows so wholly that this series was ahead of its time. That if it was to come out now, the audience is ready for it, um, ready for something like this, and it could have flourished and lived such a wonderful, full David Lynch life. Because um, in 1990, that's all anybody cared about was who killed Laura Palmer. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. And uh, that led to, you know, that eventually led to the series' own demise. Um, because, like we were saying, this was the first show to really do what it had done. And so people weren't used to, you know, 
not knowing the answer by the end of the the, the episode. Like, where's my answer? Where's uh, the episode's over? This is crazy. Um, and yeah, just just a damn shame what happened to this to this series that everybody that's all everybody cared about was who killed Laura Palmer and not what David Lynch was really truly doing with the series, which you guys understand that implicitly. David Lynch used Laura Palmer as an entryway into the world of Twin Peaks, and the show was about Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, I it was much to its own punishment. It had to air on network TV, which is just this very... They're so... I mean, it's all metric-based, and you don't get the leeway that you may get if, if this was on a subscription service. Like and it's why it was definitely I mean obviously very ahead of its time and why he was able to to make we haven't gotten there yet but why he was able to make the return in 2017 for Showtime and basically my understanding was Showtime was basically like go wild dude um, oh boy <laughs> um, like and and, and, and it, you know ABC was never going to tell him go wild they 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 were going to make him work within some confines and I think restrictions sometimes it, with with creating art and media is really good sometimes because it makes you go against you know you're like oh i need to get from point a to point b but they're not letting me go the way that i would logically go so i have to you know do this and that but um yeah the the fact that the show became who killed laura palmer versus holy shit what is going on with this town i think a lot of the blame has to fall on abc for that and 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 the fact that it didn't maybe wasn't centralized i was looking up kind of predecessor serialized dramas um and i mean even not not so much soap operas that were on during daytime but prime time and i you know like dallas and dynasty both came to mind um and both of those were i think much easier they didn't obviously have the well there was who shot jr with dallas but there was the ensemble cast of characters that were put together um largely through familial bonds and i think that is a lot easier to communicate to an audience then hey here's this then maybe communicating to the audience hey here's this town everybody's actually it's like a big family but they're just in a town i just don't know if that especially in 1990 if people were ready for that kind of way to think um especially in terms of the way that they had been fed television for you know decades beforehand yeah Uh, everything was about a family i i'm trying to think of even the sitcoms Cheers is revolutionary because it's about a, fi- a found family at a bar, basically. Um, Mash. Mash is is yeah, found family at a um, um, in, Korean you know, War camp. In the Korean War camp, and, and and that's that's the extent of it. And those are comedies; they're lighter. Um, TV dramas were very procedural, weren't they? For the most mm-hmm. part, yes. Hill Street Blues with Mark, Mark Frost tried to push the envelope a little with some continuity. Um and 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 in and, and, you know character relationships that de- evolved over time in the the eight, throughout the the run of the show but um even then it was all very light and it didn't affect the overall your overall enjoyment if you missed a couple episodes of L A Law like you know oh this person's now you know doing this or that you're like oh I you know whatever it's easy to explain to me Twin Peaks if you miss an episode you number one miss part of the show like part of the overall plot and number two it's just you know it's easy it's harder to, to relay yourself into this town um i kind of was getting off topic a little but the 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 show is is essentially it's telling you these people are the same as the family you would see on dynasty but they're terrible people 
you know, kind of <laughs> linked together through terrible circumstance. And so that leads into to my other question that I wanted to ask you too. And I'll I'll revisit this question a couple more times, so get used to it. What do you think of Laura Palmer as a character? For a character, we never well we get to briefly see clips of her alive as a character that is deceased. We it feels like she's part of the cast, like just the way that she's treated and the way you slowly learn a little bit more about her um, through the actions of others. It's it's like it's I mean obviously it's she's she's you know not alive but she's alive in the story and uh in terms of moving the the dial of the story along um and i think there's there's a pretty strong point to make that what bobby said is the opposite and like this town was disintegrating because of laura that is briefly hinted at it a couple times like bobby's life appeared to have been ruined by her like you know is she the true antagonist of the show? I guess we'll, we'll, we might be able to find out a little more, and we might get there. But it's hard. I mean, that's hard to say that that was that they were going to get away get away with presenting the show truly like that in 1990, 1991. That the victim is the antagonist. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good point. Where like Laura very well could be the the bad guy of the, of the show, um, if not the bad guy, the antagonist. But it doesn't seem like she was involved in a lot of good things um i do like the the character of laura like obviously we have to learn about her through the third person and, and never from from her own point of view um and i find that extremely extremely interesting just the way that um we we first see her as the, the homecoming queen or whatever um the scanned up model citizen who had this boyfriend and bobby and uh, then we find out that she had another boyfriend in James. She may, may or may not have had some sort of uh, too close relationship with Dr. Jacoby. Um, and we, she got Bobby into uh, dealing cocaine so she could take cocaine. She seemed to have mental health issues because she was seeing Jacoby at all. Uh, and like in a, in a lot of ways, she seems to be the glue of this town despite the fact that uh, there is almost no way that everyone knew her pretty closely. Like I imagine, some of their interactions were largely cursory. Or, uh, but yeah, we she she has uh, been integral to this. And, um, obviously, it shows about her death. But uh, just seeing the the waves that happened after her death and like how that affected everybody. Noted. Duly noted. Thank you. Sorry, I, I'm reading my notes to see if I ever forgot anything. Like the first, one of the first times we see Audrey, she's sitting at the at the reception desk with uh, the receptionist. She's poking a pencil into a styrofoam cup of coffee. We assume this is empty because we don't know anything about Audrey yet. But then she takes the pencil out, and a bunch of coffee just spills out of it. And we're like, "Oh, she's a dick." That's what we learn about her. <laughs> uh, so glad that they changed her hair between the pilot and the first episode of the series that uh, year of growth was very beneficial to to audrey's uh, appearance her like the 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 audrey hairstyle that she has during the bulk of the, the episodes it's it's perfect for the character it's just like visually and this is da- what we've talked about with david lynch before how he's so good with visually presenting things to you it just visually presents like yep i know exactly what kind of character she is the trope of at least mm-hmm. she's the, the the sexy mischievous the femme fatale. Femme yeah. fatale, yeah, all of that, yeah. So I kind of I kind of dread saying it, but I have to keep consistent 
have to keep consistent. Were there any things that people disliked about the first season? I think, I like Chris had said earlier, I think it's the perfect season of TV. Yeah. I think it's the perfect season of TV. It's as good as t- a TV season I've, I've ever seen. Um, it deals with my, like, these are, it, because we, we, we try to do this, and I think it's good that we try to do it during our, our talks of, of movies and, and now TV shows with Twin Peaks, <laughs> one thing is, and it is restricted by the TV medium, is there are some points that just, especially watching it without ad breaks, we're cut between scenes at sometimes of a jarring rate. Um, like, not not a jarring rate, but it's like a jarring shift, but yeah, I have to remember, oh yeah, there probably was like three minutes of Alka-Seltzer ads in here or something, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we talk a lot, or not we, not the, the royal we of uh, TV and film analysis talk a lot about uh, how we should have uh, butts and because, or uh, these kinds of transitions instead of and then we talk to Norma and whoever, and then we talk to Bobby and whoever. And like, that's kind of how it feels like, but it never feels like we are just going from person to person to person, because we are learning, like, substantial things about the plot and these characters in each of these scenes. So even if they, they don't uh, personally have any connection to each other, um, they are all connected by Twin Peaks, the town. And it never feels awkward in that way even though it does kind of feel like we are going from person to person uh, without any rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. I know, Corey, you had mentioned something um, early on when you were watching the pilot that you felt some of the music cues were a bit awkward. I thought you did, which I, I, remember, I remember you saying that So when I, when I watched the pilot, which I think was later that same day, um, I uh, I was trying to listen to it, and uh, if that is what you said, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you came around. You know, I knew you said the soundtrack was was terrific, which it is. Um, but I think the the way that they place the cues works beautifully, even if it doesn't seem proper at the moment. By the time the cue finishes playing and the scene is through playing, it it turns into something um, all altogether beautiful. Yeah, I don't remember saying that. Maybe I like um, I disagree with myself. Uh, I would like to mention that it starts episode three with Ben and his brother Jerry and Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, which were you happy when you finally saw them eating ice cream together? Uh, I don't remember them eating ice cream together, but yes, I was probably happy. <laughs> they were eating what was it? Um, Rocky Road was it? No, it was uh, vanilla something. I think I vanilla. French okay. vanilla. And uh, it was when. Uh, Jerry, when uh, Ben finds out that Jerry had told the Icelanders about One-Eyed Jacks and that the leader of the Icelanders wanted to finalize the deal at One-Eyed Jacks and Ben was eating ice cream and he's like, get them back on the fucking boat. We're going now to One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I was talking about, it was beginning of episode three. Jerry shows up and he brings them Bree sandwiches and Ben, like a freaking maniac, eats it from the side. What is he doing? Eating it like a champion is what he's doing. <laughs> I remember. So if you watch uh, the behind the scenes footages and interviews that are included, oh, there's so many bonus features. I spent so many hours watching all of them. Um, Richard Bamer, the actor who plays Ben Horn said that when he was uh, shooting that scene, 
he was trying to eat it normally, and David Lynch was telling him, he's like, no, just go into it, dig into it like a man. Um, <laughs> and uh, he would tr- take a bite and, tr- and say his lines, and David Lynch would be like, no, what are you doing? You, you're enjoying the sandwich. And they did the take over and over again until just uh, Richard Boehmer said, fuck it, I'm just going to be ridiculous and shoved as much of the bread into his face as he possibly could <laughs> and delivered his lines to where you can't understand a word he's saying. And David Lynch was like, perfect, that's what I wanted. Of course. Dude, David, Lynch, David Lynch stories about him on set are just, everybody just, I feel like everybody must obviously i mean it's always said you know no you know working on a set it gets a little tedious when you have to do reshoots and reshoots (laughs) david lynch seems to up the ante in terms of making each reshoot more fun (laughs) each new take more fun like Mm -hmm. and then the guy's just like what like he's like be ridiculous and the guy's like i'm not gonna be that ridiculous no be ridiculous (laughs) basically no i think my predominant memory uh of david lynch is going to be reading about how he drove around the blue velvet set where presumably (laughs) the the woman was uh either naked or covered in like a a coat between scenes and he is just riding around on a, a, a tricycle yeah that's such a good image like it's so vivid and you can see it perfectly uh love it love it love it love it uh, speaking of David Lynch stories, um, I don't know if you want to put this audio that I just sent you, Corey, into uh, the podcast at all, but there's a, a behind-the-scenes feature where Angelo Badalamente is talking about um, when he wrote Laura Palmer's theme for the for the score, and David Lynch was sitting there with him, and he <laughs> he goes on about how David, David Lynch is telling him, you're going through a dark forest. You know, with David David Lynch's impeccable voice, which for some reason I can't imitate quite well right now. Um, you know, going through a dark forest, and he was like, "Like this? Yeah, just like that, Angel." And then you're coming through to a clearing, and the clearing it opens up. It's like like this. He's like, "Yes, Angelo. Yes, just like that." It's one of the <laughs> funniest, best video clips. Um, and if you played the whole thing, the whole four minute video in this podcast. The listeners would be all the the better for it. Um, if not, you should just listen to it um, when we're done recording because it is majestic. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the the score. I have nothing bad to say about the first season. I have I have nothing nothing bad to say at all. There's nothing that I dislike. Um, when I first watched it, it was revelatory for me. The second time I watched it, it was earth-shattering for me. Um, it's it's the thing that I turn to. This Twin Peaks is my desert island pick. Um, just give me Twin Peaks, the Fire Walk with Me movie, and the Return. Just give me Twin Peaks, and that's my desert island thing. I would be perfectly happy with that. Is the only thing. Um, I this is actually the second time I've watched this series this year. Um, earlier this year, I just I just. About every six or seven months, I just am like, you know, I I want to watch Twin Peaks again, and it's not it's not for you know trying to dive deeper into the mystery like it's so multi layered that I can't uh, suss everything out. Um, that's not the case with the original Twin Peaks. Um, Firewalk with me, absolutely, and The Return, oh my god, um, but it's just it it's entertaining it the the whole series 
puts a big smile on my face, makes me feel stupid happy. The the as soon as that theme comes on, when the the the, the opening shot of the bird comes up on the screen, boom 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 boom. Um, I feel it deep within my soul, um, and it's just it's just it's comforting, and it, nothing enter- entertains me or captures my imagination more than than twin peaks so like i can't even remember if the first time i watched it if i had any issues with the series because any issues i had with the series have been washed away through repeated visits um you know i i i I understood the plot a little bit better i understood the way that david lynch was was crafting the show so any any nitpicks that I might have had about a transition here or the way that a story moved from point A to point, you know, three, not point A to point B, point A to point three, it didn't didn't bother me because I was able to understand it um, more deeply and I, I kind of felt like it, I was living through it, like it vibed through my whole body. Um, so I just I have no input when it comes to them except my gushing. Uh, I guess I'll mention that uh, Leeling the Raywise really sells the. I mean, obviously it's tragedy because Laura Palmer is dead. She's a teenager in school, high school, but uh, he really sells that um, he and his wife were extremely affected by it, and he acts to the point that like we don't really need to see anyone else's sadness or trauma as a result of. Laura's death, uh, because he is just so, so, so heartbroken and uh, broken as a person that her, his daughter has died. That, um, we don't need to see that from anybody else. Just yeah, incredible, incredible acting from Ray, Ray Wise. Ray, Ray Wise, Wise is, is a MVP. hard thing to say, I guess. Yeah. The, the, when he shows up to dance in episode, that episode six, 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 I believe. Yeah, and then and then and then it's like and then everybody's like he because this goes back to kind of what I said before like that he's treated as an inconvenience like his trauma and grief is an inconvenience for everybody else and like he shows up and it's just this absurd scene and they're like dance with him just dance with him and then the <laughs> Iceland and the Icelanders are like oh this looks fun and goofy and hokey let me get out there and dance this will be what these goofy Americans do and it's just like and it's just. He plays it so well because the whole time it's just silly, it's goofy, and you're like, I, you're like, also at the same time, you're like, but my god, I have, to, I feel awful for this guy. His daughter is dead, and nobody gives a shit. Especially his business partner, Ben. His business here. partner, the guy who's supposed to be like the close, like a very close, you know, compatriot yeah. of him. It's yeah, like as soon, as, as soon as soon as Ben finds out Laura's dead, he's like, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, blah blah blah, and that's the last time you see Ben seem to care at all about it. In yeah. a human way. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, too. It, especially because the first time you see Ben talking to Leland about this, he's like, hey, just go home, you shouldn't be here. You need to take care of your wife, take care of your family. And then we see him being like, Catherine, dance with him. Jerry, get him the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm struggling right now to think of, of other things productive to say that's not just me picking out individual scenes. Like, right now my brain is just wanting to to talk about the scene where they arrest Jacques in the final episode and Andy, like this, it feels like this completion of this big story arc for Andy, which I don't want to do to do that. Um, cause I, I, we, then, then we'll just be talking about the whole eight episode thing. Um, but there's so much payoff. I just, yeah, 
Um, I guess the last thing I'll mention is like I love Egg, Big Egg's character, um, him as a sort of do everything kind of guy in the town, and uh, especially um, him and Norma, who are obviously in love with each other. They, I believe, they're having an actual affair with each other, um, but uh, and we don't know why that. Uh, Egg is still with Nadine, who has an eye patch for some reason. We don't know why yet. And also, um, I mean, we kind of get an impression that Hank is not going to be one that allows Norma to leave the this relationship. But um, they have clearly made the wrong decisions in life that led them up to not being high school sweethearts, just being two uh, two people in a gold hood who want to be high school sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love Ed and Norma's relationship. It's uh it feels like it, that's the true relationship in the series. You know, even though they are cheating on their spouses with each other, like there's, there's something pure and honest with their relationship and their love towards each other. Yeah. They are like this microcosm of everything else that's happening. Like, uh, Ben and Catherine do not feel that way at all, obviously, because they are both terrible people. Um, but yeah, Norma and Egg represent the peak uh, not peak, uh, ideal relationship between people in this town. Like, have the, have this town not heard of divorce at all? <laughs> the, 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 cl- the closest divorce lawyer must be in, like, Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, that's a good point about their relationship, and it's almost symbolic of, like, this is what the town should have, but everybody's so self-absorbed in their own machinations that, you know, the pure thing that you all could have if you did the right thing, you're not getting. Uh, and I'm worried that their arc is headed for tragedy as well, but we'll see what, what comes out of that. I just don't know if anybody in this town is going to be allowed to be happy. Yeah, Except we'll for see. Pete, who's who's always going to be happy no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited to watch the second season and the return especially, because, like, um, obviously we uh, love the show a lot, but, like, if it was only this season, I would not like this show as much, just because um, I don't really need a payoff to Laura's death, uh, as we have mentioned, but I, I would like a payoff or closure to some of these relationships and goings-on of the town. Yeah. What is this? so um there is a meme that you can find if you search twin peaks internet about james's forehead (laughs) (laughs) Um, i just sent them a a picture of james's forehead one of the memes there's uh there's so many of them like it's it's hilarious because it's true (laughs) <laughs> um, I remember seeing one tweet years and years and years ago that was uh, one tweet years and years ago that was one of those repeated images that was went across like four or five tweets that was just his forehead going on and on forever and ever. I was I was going to say, I mean, obviously, usually uh, high schoolers are in their 20s when they're cast. He is the least convincing of all the high school students. I'm like, this guy could. This guy looks like he's 35. <laughs> he was only uh, early 20s, probably when they filmed it. I don't know the exact age. Yeah, he was born in '67, so probably 24 20, or something. 20, 22, 23. Yeah. Mm. But I lo- I'm looking at pictures of him now, and minus less hair, he, his face has not aged a day since 1991. Yeah, no. he has zero hair now, which is very surprising because he has a lot of hair. In <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's fun. It's always that's always like a funny thing with um 
anytime that high schoolers it's high school dramas because they're usually you know they might cast people when they're 18 or 19 for the first season but you know very quickly they outgrow even looking remotely close to a high schooler yeah. but this guy came came fresh out of the womb not looking like a high schooler yeah <laughs> uh, um do we have anything else, or shall we close out this episode and we can talk about any lingering thoughts that we forgot about uh, in the discussion? Yeah, I think I think we did a pretty good job of talking about the the impact that Twin Peaks had. Talked about the structure of the the series. Um, you know, we we could we could go on about our favorite bits. Like, I'm surprised I didn't mention the llama, which is if you look on uh, the Taiku Podcast website. The the llama is my uh, my avatar for my 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 guest spot host whatever you want to call it on the the host page. But we did a really we did a really good job of talking about it, and without getting too much into spoilers, which we're going to inherently get into spoilers when we talk about season two. Um, so I think we're okay. Uh, Cil Harry S Truman IRL play division one hockey it's pretty good really oh yeah another another item of trivia that relates directly to you Corey is mark frost nephew pitches for the white Sox. yeah lucas giolito Giolito. Giolito. yeah Yeah. so there you go we've we've come full circle here yeah i think i've mentioned it a couple of times to chris because i saw the twin peaks connection (laughs) santa monica king hollywood connection uh but anyway um shall we close out this episode where can we find everybody online well, before we close it out, I just want to mention to everybody, next month, we're not doing Twin Peaks Season 2. We're going to be talking about Wild at Heart, uh, which is the film that David Lynch made at between the pilot and when Twin Peaks went to series. Um, so it was filmed in late 89, early 90, came out in 91. Uh, so look forward to that. Um, and then we'll come back to Twin Peaks, the first uh, nine or ten episodes of Season 2 to finish off the Laura Palmer case the month after that. I like telling people what we're doing next. It makes me feel good. Yeah, I was going to do that, and then I forgot. Thank you, Chris. So where yeah. can we find you, Chris? Okay, yeah, um, I am on Twitter, at Antonius Pius. Um, you can always just go to the Taiku Podcast uh, website. Link is there in my profile with my picture of uh, it's Space Brothers. Anyway, yeah. um, not a llama. <laughs> And you can find me on the Twitters at GoKoofy. Uh, you can also find my YouTube page, uh, Cups of Night Films, which, as of this recording, the last video that I made was a couple months ago, but it was uh, Twin Peaks. Surprise, surprise. So. <laughs> and? Oh, yeah, that's right. And you can also find me at Letterboxd at GoKoofy. That's, I always forget about that. I always forget about my Letterboxd, even though that's where I'm... Uh, most active at currently going through the uh halfway to black friday sale vinegar syndrome releases so join me over there it's fun stuff three uh three twin peak reviews from chris on letterboxd only three uh that's all i'm putting only showing me i'm gonna have to double check your work here because i know i at least have nine reviews for uh fire walk with me let's take a short break hangs i'll be back with helen and mercedes to talk about those no white notes
We're back. Helen has joined me. By which we mean that I told Corey we are doing an episode at Snow White Notes and I will be there for it. <laughs> That's how episodes usually go here. Yep. Uh, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Mercedes. Hello. Uh, and we asked you here for a particular reason. Um, would you like to elaborate on that reason? Yes. So I believe you asked me here because, um, and we were saying this before we started, I dropped the fact that I play shamisen, <laughs> which I never get to do. Um, I play, I studied shamisen and koto in Japan for uh, four years. I still play, and uh, now that there's a shamisen anime, I am hungry to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I only we realized were... this fact after we recorded our episode on kono ototomare and i was like damn it Corey, we could have had an actual person talking about koto on here instead of the two of us speculating on well we liked it yeah so we're not making a mistake twice uh what uh what like in particular brought you to shamisen and koto in like as instruments they're obviously not the typical one for english-speaking people so uh, so I should say a little background on me. So I, up until August 2020, I lived in Japan for four years. Um, I moved there in July 2016, and I moved to the Tohoku region, which has a lot of really good instruments. And I had been looking to play a new instrument. That's just my thing, is I grew up playing music. I love instruments, and I had always wanted to play a string instrument. And I asked one of the English teachers, I was like, hey, do you know anyone who teaches shamisen in the city? I would really like to learn it. And um, I believe the process was about a month after I moved to Japan, she took me to like this little annex and introduced me to my shamisen teacher of four years, Takahashi Sensei, who passed me a shamisen, passed me the plectrum that you strike it with and was like, play. And I was like, I don't know what to do, <laughs> but that's how she basically like jumped me into shamisen. Um, and part of her teaching style was that pretty much if you were a student of hers, you were going to learn Koto. Um, and that's how I also learned Koto was one day she was like, Hey, come on in, sit down. She, you know, I sat down and I waited and then she took out a Koto and she was like, you're doing this today. <laughs> and, that, and that was, that was pretty much, that was, that was about, I started Koto about a year and a half into my studies, but that was how she got me to play Koto. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, she was happy that uh, she had another student. And I mean, like all of my lessons were in Japanese. So I just had to learn a lot of musical terms in Japanese and learn a lot of shamisen terms in Japanese. Um, but it was really good, both as a musician and both as someone who was learning Japanese. It helped me a lot. But that's pretty much how I got into it was just I asked someone knew a person and I got to play. That's pretty cool. Uh, so what else do you play? Is just, I mean, it's um, obviously not just Shamisen, Shamisen and Koto. So Shamisen and Koto are my two biggest things right now. I'm teaching myself ocarina because uh, I have some I'm craving cottage core. That's my big thing <laughs> this year. And ocarina feels really foresty. Um, I'm learning ocarina. Um, I have multiple kalimbas and I'm also learning how to chip tune. There's going to be a one-woman band over there. I mean, I'm <laughs> determined. I'm very determined. Um, ironically, the one instrument I've never been able to understand is guitar. It's really hard for me. There's six strings. That's just too many. It's yeah. way too many. Put the, put the limit of three. Yeah, yeah. Three, maybe four. But yeah. six, mm, that's too many. 
That's like well, twice as many as three. Yeah. Wait, what about um, Koto? Because doesn't Koto have like... <laughs> wait, okay, wait, that fell through because Koto had... <laughs> Koto, I, the Koto I played had 13, but it, I, it's different. It's bigger. The strings are bigger. Ah, okay. Well, you know, I'm saying that, but like Koto is also... It's, it's hard because you play with three fingers, but like you have to know which you have to know which order to move your fingers in. Like if you're sliding between notes, you might use your middle finger and you think that that's easy, but then you do it and you're like, Oh, this is very hard. <laughs> um, yeah. Koto has 13. So I guess I can't use that excuse. Guitar is just hard. I don't understand it. And piano is hard for me too. Um, but yeah, I, I just like to pick up new instruments um, as I can. It's just fun. All right, that's pretty cool. I played guitar very poorly in high school and into college, so I sympathize with your guitar struggles. <laughs> I learned a little bit of guitar in the eighth grade, but I am—I wouldn't say I'm the unmusical one in my family, since the general opinion in my family is that the musical talent has skipped several generations at this oh, point. So <laughs> and I, nobody even thought I, about giving me lessons. It was like, oh, Helen's just gonna do art. That's good. That's good. For that's her. funny. I will say I can't sing either. That's the one thing is like I can't sing. And I, I feel like this is a weird skill to like flex on. I can tune instruments by ear, but I cannot sing. Can't hold a pitch. I, I respect the tuning instruments by ear because mm-hmm. I tried that several times, and every time I tested it against the tuner, it was wrong. Yeah, well, and that's that's how I was taught to tune my shamisen was by ear. So like, I'll just adjust it as needed until it sounds right. <laughs> um, and I can I can thank I can thank my seventy year old teacher who taught me that. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right um well we can jump into those no white notes discussions um let's see this was recently 12 episode anime streaming on crunchyroll uh originally a uh, i guess 27 volume series that is a, a lot of volumes i did not know it had that many um and it's still by, ongoing <laughs> yeah i was uh, gonna say it's it's still it's been out since 2009 mm-hmm. and we only have volume eight in english <laughs> Oh, but I have a complaint about that. Konanshan's putting out a new volume every three weeks. So I read the first volume like late March. And by the time I got my review up, there were like themes out. (laughs) I had to double check their review schedule before I put up my review just so I had the correct number of volumes on there. Oh my gosh, that's that's a quick pace. I have complaints about that, but that is for another moment in the podcast. Anyway, manga written by Marimo Ragawa uh, is about Sawamura Setsu, who is a uh, shamisen player who moves from, which mm, is very sparse, and I go not remember, the sticks of uh, Wasn't Japan. Wasn't Yeah, he, he moves from the Sugaru region of Aomori. Okay. I'm glad uh, you two are much more on top of this than I am. <laughs> well, that's where the name of his style shamisen playing comes from. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he moves to Tokyo um, after his grandfather passes away, and he uh, maybe just kind of wants to get away from everything, and get especially away from um, the memories of his grandfather and seemingly his mother generally. Uh, but he uh, joins a high school shamisen group, uh, at which point I was like, certainly this is not going to get sports. I can't talk about it. But it turned into a sports anime because her mother, or his mother, literally made a shamisen tournament um, where he played with his friends uh, in the club and played by himself solo. Uh, 
And that's pretty much it. And the rule I, of this podcast is that if there's a competition in it, we're calling it a sport. Yeah. I, lo- I like that rule. I like that. I have to say, I screamed when his mother made a competition <laughs> to force him to play. I was like, what kind of parent? <laughs> what kind of parent is this? And I mean, Umeko is some kind of parent. She's so over the top. Like Her first <laughs> appearance in the manga, I think they might have changed it slightly in the anime, but her first appearance in the manga is parachuting out of a plane to go meet Setsu's older brother who's still out in the sticks. And he's just like, oh God, she's here. I just, yeah, I mean, she's a terror of a woman in a lot of ways. And I kind of like her, but then I'm like, oh, Set- oh Umeko, you, you, sis. <laughs> Yeah, I respected her up until the last episode, and then yeah. she's just, like, needlessly cruel to Setsu, and I'm like, nope, you are on the shit parent list now. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, but, like, obviously, uh, Setsu had learned, uh, not excellent, the second part of my sentence is going to be obvious, Setsu learned his uh, uh, shamisen um, abilities from his grandfather, and he was very affected by his grandfather's death. Um, so, really, like, being able to be with uh, contemporaries his own age, and uh, in Shamisen playing has really helped him not just uh, deal with the fact that his grandfather and teacher is guy, but also uh, open up more to literally anybody, it seems. Um, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, really the thing that I like about all, all sports anime, all kinds of um, slice-of-life-y anime like this, is that um, the characters like Sexu are placed in an uncomfortable situation and change as a result of it. I guess that's what we like about fiction. That was a very obvious sense. Yeah, it's kind of like that viral tweet or, you know, that sentiment, oh, this sports anime because it focuses on the characters. You fool, <laughs> that's the benefit of all sports anime. They focus on the characters. <laughs> right. That's like why people like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Setsu, God bless his heart, is a very moody teenager. I mean, he's 16. It's a perfectly respectable age to be kind of moody. You know, he's also got an even weirder family situation than we said up at the top. Like, his father is someone else in the community. I wasn't honestly positive about that when the anime brought it up. But so yeah. you can tell he's sort of like defensively retreating into himself, doesn't really want expectations on himself. But everyone around him can see, like, dude, you have this really great talent for shamisen playing, and you like playing the shamisen. You should definitely think about continuing this as a major part of your life going forward. And he's like, dunno. Right. Dunno. <laughs> right. And you, you have to feel for the kid, because, like, Aomori Prefecture has, I want to say it's, like, one point, um, probably, like, 1.3 million people in the entire prefecture. So, like, this kid is in some ti- from some tiny town, like everyone knows this child and he just wants to play the way he wants <laughs> and like he just can't he can't be happy yeah and that's really the struggle throughout it because his mother wants uh his grandfather's legacy her grandfather's legacy her father's legacy i'm getting it right eventually um <laughs> to be to be remembered um because he was never like this big shamisen player he didn't get recordings or anything like that or album but um anyone who knew him seemed to be really affected by his playing like there's mm-hmm. a moment when um wikipedia only has the list of names and i remember zero people's names uh as as they relate to which character they are but one of the other characters has a grandmother that uh seems to be losing some mental facilities but she really uh remembers this shamisen player yeah from... um shuri's grandmother shuri okay uh, yeah, she remembers the shamisen player from, I believe, it's a train station in, like, the 40s, and she remembers this song that she keeps humming, and Sexu is like, wait, that's my grandfather's song, so, like, obviously, he was a 
he was a great player and people were affected by it. And uh, Umeko wants that to be remembered, but Setsu is not his grandfather. Even if he learned from him, he's not going to play the same day. Like, what they uh, are really fighting at here is, like, Setsu wants to play Shamisen his own way. And he wants to uh, pave out his own path, but Umeko really just wants Setsu to be her father. And to his grandfather's credit, he could always see this danger of becoming too much of a singular influence on Setsu and his older brother who also plays Shamisen. So he was always trying to encourage Setsu to not try to just imitate him, but to maybe steal some of his techniques and work it farther. And Mm -hmm. that was part of the reason why Setsu was so upset with his death. He just hadn't quite grasped that yet. And so he needed to just literally run away to Tokyo and like go crash for a random person and start discovering all this. It's kind of weird because that first episode of the anime, it's one chapter in the manga, but it's like a 120 page chapter. Like it's basically its own one shot all on its own. Yeah. Cause that first episode does feel like its own kind of self-contained story. And I, I kept thinking, I was like, how long is this actually in the manga? Is this like a volume? Is it like one chapter? Because it, it, it does, and it makes sense that it's 120 pages. It, it completely makes sense now. Which is sometimes the length of an entire volume, but there's like a second chapter squeezed in there as well. It must be a very <laughs> thick first volume. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Because like that, I felt so bad for him in the first episode because this poor kid. And I kept wondering, I was like, dang, that's an expensive trip to go all the way from Aomori to Tokyo. But like he just hops on a train and he just goes to Tokyo and he emotes all around the city. He gets taken in by a hostess who's like, yeah, I'll look after you. You can just stay here until you sort stuff out, which like, God bless. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's just this poor kid. He doesn't ever really, he grieves throughout the series, but like, you just want to hug him and tell him like, said, so it's all right to cry over your grandfather. Like, but also maybe running away to Tokyo and not telling anyone was not a safe idea. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, funny since I read the first volume of the manga before I saw the first anime episode since I was reviewing the manga and I wanted to have the manga more present in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so once I got to the first anime episode, I was like, I've seen you guys hollering about this on Twitter, but folks, you could have so much more. This pacing is just so fast. And I felt like that throughout the entire series. There were so many little moments where I was like, I understand that this is supposed to be a point of emotional climax for some of the characters. It's supposed to be a moment of growth, but we haven't had the steps put in for it. We're just moving through too fast for me to really connect with them on the level of like, Jihai is like the first thing I thought of, you know, as a comparison, you know, two series that both really revitalized interest in a kind of obscure sport, you know? Mm. And, I, and I was like, ah, I feel like I just want to spend more time with them. And so I really do want to keep reading more of the manga now, just to have just to see if that helps the pacing shoes a little bit. Like there's that um, Shamisen shop owner who sort of becomes their coach. And he's just like introduced almost in between scenes. It's like, like oh yeah, he's a part of the cast now. Don't you remember? No, we haven't shown him before. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a, like blink and you miss it. Cause he just pops in and then all of a sudden they are up an Almory and you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. I would like a little bit more of him. And then he like pops up later and you're like, oh, he's back. Well, what a treat. But now that I know that Kodansha's like cranking this out like super often. Oh, yeah. Like I'll have to get on. Re- yeah. Like but- the running joke that Justin and I have over on the OASG is that Kodansha USA is somewhat beholden to the whims of Kodansha Japan, the parent company. And when I look at this and I see how fast they're releasing this year and they do 
release their digital only or their digital first series quickly sometimes. Yeah. Like, I remember, like, I think I was looking up the release dates for Orient when I was reviewing that recently. They were re- releasing that like once a month, once every six weeks, but they're on like a once every three or four weeks. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I, and I'm like, this does not, I'm like, who's actually keeping up with this? This feels like a bad marketing strategy. I mean, Ignoring the it, fact y'all already don't market your digital manga enough. That is also <laughs> another rant. Ass- assumably someone out there has to be keeping up with it, right? Like, I think Deb Aoki is, but she may be the only person. I mean, Deb Aoki, like, just keeps up with everything, though, has a strength that I don't, I don't have. And I, that I admire, but I don't have. So, like, if, if Deb is personally keeping this going, thank you, Deb, from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I did look at the wiki for it, and I was like, okay, well, what is, what is the release date? And I see that Volume 1 came out on March 30th, and then Volume 2 was April 6th. That's not a big gap, Kodansha. That's think, really close. Yeah, and I think the first episode of the anime came out, like, March 31st or April 1st. They, like, and and I, I, I wonder if the schedule will change now that the now it's a new season. Um, who knows? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, just keep on cranking it out, Kodansha. I'll eventually get around to, to reading start, it. They may have intended to start releasing this a little earlier than they did. Mm-hmm. Another thing they do is that they tend to release like a series every week. And sometimes you get to Monday and you're like, look, I know you guys release things on Tuesdays and we have no idea what you're doing tomorrow. You haven't even put up your schedule yet for the month. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, as far as the... Um... Back in the anime. As far as the Shamisen playing goes, uh, Mercedes, do you think they? Did a, I mean, I have I have no idea how <laughs> if they did a good job uh, in like sp- music, anime in general. But like to me, amateur ears sound good, pretty good. Well, like it's so I should say like the Yoshida brothers, who are two really famous brothers, um, that really popularized Shamisen. Uh, I, you know what? Yeah, I think they are blood brothers. I said that, and I, I wasn't sure. I was like, did they just call themselves brothers just because? But the Yoshida brothers worked on this, and the Yoshida brothers are two shamisen musicians who really, in the 90s and, like, 99, I want to say, really brought shamisen kind of into the modern era. Like, when you think of shamisen and you think of musicians that are, like, popular, they're, they're, two, they're immediately two people you think of. And they worked on this. So, like, the music is on point. The shamisen playing is really good. Um, they also did the, I think they did the ending theme song for the show. Um, but, like, in terms of the animation, like, when Setsu is playing, um, it feels like how you play. It looks like how you play. Um, and the thing that stuck out to me most was, I think it's... Oh, God, I'm also bad with names. Um, I think it's Kaito who plays quite strongly. And, like, mm-hmm. the strike of his bocce, the plectum that you strike the shamisen with, that strike sounds like how it sounds. It's this really sharp noise that... Um, I really like about the shamisen. That's kind of what makes the shamisen. The shamisen is the noise it makes. And like, that sounds really crisp and good. So you can tell that like, clearly they, they wanted to make sure that the shamisen was done justice. So it sounds really good. It makes me think of, um, it makes me think of my lessons and like hearing <laughs> my teacher play. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty uh, that's... cool to hear since when I was watching the show, I'd been kind of wondering how they were approaching handling a series about musicians but who aren't professionals, they're still inherently amateur. Right. I remember 
when I was reading stuff about sound euphonium, Kyoto Animation was talking about how for their group ensembles, they were recording um, a local school that had done very well in some competitions. And so you were hearing like a genuine high school ensemble. And then I know in that show at one point, there's sort of a duel between two trumpet players. Mm -hmm. And so to demonstrate the difference, they had an actual pro play one part and then like the best high school trumpet player in that school play the other part. And so I was really thinking about how are they doing here, especially since once you get to the competition, you've got like 20 different people playing shamisens at least. (laughs) Right. And I I will say the one thing that I wish was more readily available was like who is actually playing because you have the Yoshida brothers supervised and like they did work on they did work on the end theme song but like I really would like to know who is playing when we hear the students Mm -hmm. because like it's also really good shamisen playing but like it's also like the mistakes and the things that are built in I want to know like who was instructing and how was that done because that's kind of neat Um, and I will say also like Shuri's shamisen playing is the most relatable (laughs) because and um, I think the scene where I was like, oh, yeah, like they really consulted was um, when they're first all learning how to play in an ensemble. Um, and, and Setsu keeps telling them, like, go back to the beginning, go back to the beginning. That is a real experience. Um, I will say I was trained in the Nagauta style, which they mention a few times throughout the show. And Nagauta is basically um, it's kind of a it's an ensemble style. And it also incorporates Uta singing. Um, and whereas I never sang because I think my teacher very quickly realized I could not. Um, it, it's it's an ensemble accompaniment style. And so, but like even still when I would practice, if I messed up, she would say, go back. And if you weren't past that movement, that meant back to the beginning. Sometimes I would get lucky and I would be like, a few measures into the next movement and go back would mean like go back to the start of that section. But like when Setsu was instructing them to do that, I groaned because I have visceral, <laughs> I have these visceral memories of when I was first starting Shamisen, um, having to play Sakura Sakura, which I think is the first song like Shuri practices on um, and having, and being told to go back to the beginning over and over again. Um, but I mean, it's what helps you learn. Yeah. <laughs> it's how you get better. Quick tangential question Mm. on that style you just mentioned do some folks sing while they're playing the shamisen then yes that sounds incredibly complicated that sounds like too many things to focus on at once yeah i mean (laughs) while playing the shamisen or while playing the koto because you'll you'll often hear both both of them together with like shakuhachi the big kind of long bamboo flute Mm -hmm. um you'll hear like an ensemble of that but like yeah you sing while and it's and it's this really emotional traumatic singing um if you've ever heard like inka like japanese like traditional inka music it's this really dramatic has these really high highs and like these and it and it dips and it's kind of like listening to an ocean if an ocean had a voice it's the best way to describe it because it has these big swells but you're doing that while playing (laughs) and that's kind of what uh sex mom was doing in that one of those first scenes yeah 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 like when you it's, brought that up i was suddenly going hey wait a minute <laughs> yeah it's that it's that she's she's emulating that style that really dramatic um really like from the stomach kind mm-hmm. of singing where like and w- i think there's a point where like her voice goes really high and she stretches out a note 
it's that kind of style of singing. Oh, yeah. And Setsu, I think he can't keep up with it. I think it's spring breaks between that note or something. Yeah, his his spring breaks and like his mother's voice is overpowering the song. Because that's another thing is like he mentions, oh, you know, my mom's voice is overwhelming the sound of the music. And it's this balance of you keep the singing level with the instrument because you don't want the singing to overwhelm the shamisen because the shamisen is kind of the foundation. But you don't want the shamisen to overwhelm the singers. Yeah. But it's it's that exact kind of style of singing. Man, this must have all been catnip to somebody like you who has a shot. I was I was digging it. I was like, ooh, because I mean, like like I said, I spent I I spent I mean what twice a week I would go to practice. So like this was just giving me all these good vibes. And I mean, I should say like they don't sell how loud Umeko was singing. I could if my teacher was singing, like I could hear her up the block because you, you have to project because you're not miked. Like, I think, you know, now, nowadays in modern times, you're miked, but like when, when my teacher, for example, performs at a shrine, she's not miked. So she has to really project, um, which is really impressive, <laughs> but I, it's, yeah, this was just like, Ooh, shamisen vibes. Just really enjoying it. That reminds me of a story I heard in high school that, one of my classmates, older siblings, had been in the drama club a couple of years before we were there. And apparently he was so loud that they wouldn't mic him during the shows, but they would mic like his co-stars. And so occasionally he would get close and then you'd be able to hear him oh, mic. No. And was like, oh, <laughs> oh, no, just a swelling of sound. <laughs> my gosh. But yeah, I mean, I would say overall, like, this feels like it feels like Shamisen. It feels like that. And I, I studied I studied with a wide range of people. I studied with. One of the students, he had been there since he was four, and he had been learning under her since he was four, and he was he was about to enter high school. And so, like, I saw him go from a middle school student to a high school student. Um, and then I was there with, like, the, the Japanese grandmas who were, like, in their 60s, and this is just a hobby they did. So, like, I... It, it feels like that kind of wide range of experience, but especially it feels like students playing at times. Because, like, Setsu is good, but you know he's going to get better if he's not crushed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he's going to get better because he kind of got crushed. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to get better. But, I mean, then again, this manga is really long, so he has to get better. <laughs> Maybe he just gives it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this anime engine. <laughs> A bit of a ballsy place there. I was, since Corey, it, I saw you saying you weren't sure if that was the last episode or not. And I saw our mutual friend Inc. also saying I wasn't sure if that was the last episode or not. And I'm like, no, guys, that was the final episode. We're just ending with Setsu being very, very sad. It, yeah. it feels like good sequel bait. Like, I'm waiting for them in fall 2020 to be like, those Snow White notes, two, coming at you next year, you know. But it also... I don't know. I don't like seeing teenagers sad. And this show <laughs> yeah. ended real sad. Yeah, I know I compared it to Chihaifu earlier, but in some ways what it reminded me more was um, March comes in like a lion, especially with Setsu's living setup where he's separate from his family by choice. And so he's kind of becoming closer to like um, that restaurant owner and his family who lives below him, but also just with all of the sadness and depression, which is sort of like an overarching theme. Mm-hmm. March comes in like a lion. And it was like, yep, that's that's kind of what high school is like at times, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. just big old imageries of oceans and stuff like that. Or in the Snow White notes, there's obviously a lot of imagery related to snow and blizzards. It, it's in the title. So <laughs> <laughs> 
Also, I want to say, I don't know why they changed the opening song halfway through. I'm glad they went back to the original at the end because that was a banger. (laughs) Yeah, I like, I mean, the second one was good, but I was really into Blizzard. Yes. I I was like, wow, this is a jam. And then you go to episode six and you're like, wait a minute. I think it's six or seven is when it changes. And it's just like, you know, I was, I was all right with the first one. That was good. Because I don't change the ending song. And the ending song is also very good. (laughs) Yeah. Ending song's a banger. I genuinely would buy this entire soundtrack. (laughs) In large part because I just want more Shamisen music in my life. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, definitely after episodes, uh, Dana and I would play sometimes Shamisen music after we were watching the Kokto anime. We would play, like, Kokto music. It's just um, the thing that I really like about music anime is that it just kind of uh, wholly envelops you in a way that a lot of other anime cannot, just because you can interact with not just the the story that's going on, but also this instrument that's being played, or instruments in the case of like sound euphonium. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can uh, play that outside of the context of the show. It'd be like, oh, here's a professional playing this song. I guess that sounds you know slightly different because it's a different person playing it. And also because they have simplified it for uh, the high school. Right. Well, and I think I think that's kind of the neat thing about this is like what I what I hope this causes is like renewed interest in shamisen all over again. Like, I mean, there's there's definitely still interest in Japan for sure. Um, But I really hope what it does is it gets other people outside of Japan to look into shamisen because it's a really cool instrument. Um, and I need to not be alone in talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw someone on Twitter saying that this series, when the manga started, it did for Shamisen playing what Jayafru did for Karuta. So, yeah. And it was funny since I was actually listening to a lecture from the Smithsonian earlier today, because I'm a nerd and I have this podcast, and it was on Shamisen's, and there was someone playing um, Suguru Shamisen. I think he was doing the exact piece that Setsu's club does in the show, um, John Mm. And I was listening and I was was like, I think the name is the same and this is sounding the same. Like, I do not understand music, but I'm pretty sure this is the same piece. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I, I'll say like, I, Suguru Shamisen are really cool because they're, they're kind of, they're, they're the chunky boys of Shamisen. They're really thick. Um, and they're bigger. They're like, I don't know if they it's make fair to lower call it. notes too, don't yeah, they? It, it's like the bass guitar of Shamisen. They're yeah, they're they they have a bigger drum, and um, I I imagine that the skin for Shamisen is the same. I I would imagine it has to be. Um, but like I think they're just bigger, so they have a more robust sound. Um, and they typically like they have a thicker neck and a thicker string. Um, and they I they. They just they feel different and like it's it's neat that this anime has so many of them because they're really cool um, and they're used a lot if when shamisen is in other genres like you'll hear them used for jazz or rock hmm. which is kind of cool yeah since before so. the show I was thinking I didn't know music that much I'd mostly heard it as sort of like this thin reedy music where I was mm-hmm. thinking it, are these strings made out of cat gut because this sounds like a cat's possessed soul is screaming well, right now. It's, the strings aren't but um, the skin of the drum is definitely made from cat skin and I don't know if that's still done nowadays but <laughs> oh, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's some sort of leather at the very least but when I, mean, I was hearing the music here I was like oh this is more my jam this is mm-hmm. just less screechy just what I prefer so 
So are there, uh, I mean, obviously there are several different kinds of shamisen, but is it like an innumerable amount? Like there is guitars, like obviously there is acoustic, semi-acoustic, electric, but then also you have all different pickups and electric guitars and et cetera. So yeah, you do, there, there are different constructions. So there's three basic sizes. You have your hosuzao, your hosuzao, which is like your thin neck shamisen. That's literally what it means is your thinner neck. It's the smallest shamisen and it has a thinner neck. That's what I played on. And it's used usually in Naga Uta shamisen, that kind of singing ensemble style. Didn't one um, of the other club members at one, like Rai, accompanied yeah. his dad who did um, Rakugo, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's um and it and that's where you'll oft, you'll hear it too is in Rakugo as like an accompaniment and you know I think you'll hear it in uh, in Kabuki as an accompaniment as well um and then you've got you and I should say Hosozao are also used by geisha um but instead of using the plectrum the that you strike it with they usually use their fingernails um which I think is pretty metal <laughs> of geisha um then you've got your chuzao and chuzao literally means middle neck it's your kind of middle shamisen the neck is a little thicker um and the so when you look at a shamisen the neck usually tapers on the smallest shamisen on a chuzao it's all the same kind of thickness um and then you have a futozao which futozao literally means like fat neck um, or thick neck, it's the thickest. Um, and Sugaru shamisen usually are a futozao. They have a really thick neck, which they need because the strings are a different. They're, uh, I believe shamisen strings are made out of silk. Um, I, I imagine nowadays they're probably nylon because that would be very expensive as much as shamisen strings <laughs> can break. Um, but your the Sugaru shamisens have a thicker neck to sustain the string. Um, and it's longer than like your traditional Naga Uta shamisen, the traditional smaller shamisen. Um, and then you have like different um, plectrums, the bachi that you use to strike the strings. Those can be wood, plastic, ivory, um, and you know they're priced accordingly. I think they can also be tortoise shell. I imagine that as we have become a more um, green planet, like tortoiseshell and ivory probably aren't used a lot, though I will say my um, my finger picks for my koto are made out of ivory <laughs> and like it's authentic ivory. And I, I just, you know, you have to hope that it was like ethically gotten. It probably was. Um, and then you have the coma, which that's more, the coma is like the bridge where the strings sit. That has a lot more different kind of makes than I would say shamisen, because that can be out of different materials too. But in general, you're just working with three, three different kind of sizes. Yeah. Well, shamisen knowledge for everyone. <laughs> now I'm curious, are there any electric in the same way there are electric violins? I There has to be, because so there's a band that I really like called Wagaki Band, and their name literally means like Japanese instrument band. And they use a lot of Japanese instruments in like pop metal. Like they have a metal cover of a really famous shamisen and koto song um, called Sin Bon Zakura. Um, and so there has to be like, I know you could probably install an electric pickup on a shamisen and like turn that into metal. I mean, I, I would imagine nowadays, because of the kind of blending of traditional instruments with modern music, yeah, someone out there has an electric shamisen. It's not me, yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, it was probably that Mega Geth guy that played the opening for Bogacious Space Pirates as one. <laughs> probably. No, I, I would imagine that, like, someone out there has made one. Or that it might even be available to, like, retrofit. Um, but someone has to have one, for sure. Yeah, thanks. Well, um, for those that like notes, do we have anything else that we would like to talk about before we close up the episode? I just don't like Umeko. <laughs> just, that's all I have to say. I think, well, and I, I don't know if that's selling her short, because I think, I think Umeko is like a lot of parents in that she is grieving and her grief um, keeps her, her grief obscures the fact that she is hurting her son. She's kind of lovingly neglecting him a lot and it kind of keeps her from realizing that and then she shatters his trophy which like yikes <laughs> it's bad parenting 101 um yeah i just don't i want i don't know i just want to send umeko to like some sort of grief counseling so she could not treat her son that way i do like her style though <laughs> and i thought she sang really beautifully i i have to assume that was her voice actress singing um because it was really beautiful but yeah, she just Umeko, sweetie, <laughs> take a chill pill. <laughs> Don't be so mean to your child. The impression I got is that she's been a lot to handle for a while. Since you look at Setsu's older brother Wakana, and he can't drink yet with nineteen tops. You know, nineteen going on twenty. Mm-hmm. But he looks like he's in his mid thirties already. Like everybody's <laughs> like, "Oh, it's Setsu's dad." What do you mean that's his older brother? <laughs> yeah, because like he has like a five o'clock shadow perpetually like he does not i don't think i realized he was like under the drinking age oh my gosh yeah (laughs) but yeah other than that this was a really nice show even if i did prefer the manga's pacing for what i read of it just hearing the music in the show is such a great thing yeah the manga yep. tries, you know, to evoke music. It has, you know, like flowery looking sequences, etc. I will say it did a sight better than Blue Giant. Corey remembers me mm. complaining about this on another yep. podcast. But mm. just hearing the music is and I would totally watch a sign of this. Yeah, yeah it, it's I will say like that is the strong suit of this because like they use they use a lot of these really interesting motifs, like the sound of like petals falling, which is a really common thing in Naga Uta music. You'll often have like, especially for things about spring, like the sound of cherry blossoms falling into water. Um, and you can emulate that kind of sound on a Kotoro Shamisen really easily. Um, and I really like that Setsu is compared to birds taking flight a lot because it's kind of like how it sounds. And that's something you can only really get from the anime. Oh yeah. So. Since you say that about like repeating motifs, which I'm just completely unaware of. So I can hear the music and appreciate it. But even if the manga was to evoke that, you know, with mm. motifs of petals falling, I'm going to be like, I'm afraid I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on going. but I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the good thing with the visuals, right? Is because like a lot of, a lot of Setsu's motifs are birds flying in like the sound of snow falling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, you know, when when they're all playing as an ensemble at the competition, and he's like, okay, p- we're going to mix in some Naga Uta style, mm-hmm. that's when you start to hear, like, the leaves falling, and that kind of, like, um, he does a lot of stuff with, like, triplet notes, the kind of dun-na-na-na, dun-na-na-na, that kind of pattern, you can hear it a little bit, and that's, it, to me, it evokes, like, it can evoke the sound of water rushing, it can evoke the sound of leaves falling or petals falling, and it, that that's why I like Naga Uta, because that was a lot of what I got to learn, and it's really cool little tricks 
And like manga sound effects can capture that, but you can't hear a sound effect sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like credit to the letterer and like the translator for sure. But you can't, there are some things that are visual that like you need the, you need additional input to understand what it's trying to convey. And I think that's where the anime really shines. Like this is something to watch just for the sensory input of like the shamisen. Um, And even just watching it you can kind of get this different feel than if you just read it in a manga where it's stagnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, next to the struggle that I have with a lot of, uh, literally all of uh, music-based manga, where I enjoy reading them, I like them a lot, but their anime counterparts are going to be uh, likely much better just because it has that audio element that manga cannot reproduce unless mm-hmm. you slap the only the only music manga I will cut slack to actually, ironically, is Kono Ototomore, <laughs> which the manga you can you can hear and and I'll credit it to in Japan it has a um, it actually has a CD that released while the manga was being serialized, which it still is, um, but it had like a drama CD and and a like soundtrack of the music inside of the manga, so you could kind of put that on and like envision it with it. But I will say it's one manga that, like, it does actually feel like the music is coming off the page. But I think that that's kind of like a once in a boon kind of thing. I actually do know some webcomics that are doing similar. There's a way to have music play reading stuff on webtoon. So sometimes mm-hmm. the creators mm-hmm. will set that up. Mm-hmm. But that was like specific. That, that website is specifically designed to do that. I have not come across any right. comics yeah. posted Gosh. outside of it that do that. Kodansha, get on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I would I would buy, I mean, I already buy a lot of digital manga anyway, <laughs> but I would buy more if it came with the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. All of, all of this uh, false Kickstarters, um, the uh, Azuki <laughs> manga yeah. thing that's starting up, you can, let's, make, let's make a music one. Yeah, come on, Azuki. Yeah. Get on it. Um, yeah, I also really, really like this anime. Um, I hope that came across from my various ramblings, but um, it ended in a place where uh, I did not know it ending, but I enjoyed the way it ended just because it's not always satisfying when the main characters succeed immediately upon starting out on this venture, in this case, Shamisen venture. Um, spoilers, it's kind of reminiscent of the way Haikyuu ended, where you get further than you expected, but you're not where you want. It's kind of a satisfactory place to end for a first season thing. Oh, the boys in Haikyuu don't win? Wait, I've never read Haikyuu. <laughs> <laughs> you can't win every single volleyball game. You can only win most of them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, they, they go on a winding road toward victory. Okay. Yeah, and I, I will say, actually, that is the nice thing about this series, is, like, it doesn't like they don't get first place they get third and so does setsu and i actually like that because it feels like they fought really hard to get to third and if they had gotten first i don't actually think i would like this series totally yeah i wouldn't have bought into it especially setsu has experience rai has experience i kind of got the impression that one of the other characters one of the other characters in the club might have some sort of musical experience but they've got at least two raw beginners in the band at least i was like i would not have believed it if they got first place yeah, I like when they got third place and then they got like the special prize for potential. I was like, that feels satisfying. Mm-hmm. If they had just gotten first place, like I would have been like, oh, okay. Well, that's manga for you. And the teacher advisor's so excited, third place. And she's like, oh, was I not supposed to cheer there? <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad for her when she cheered because she was like, oh, is no one else going to stand up? 
<laughs> she like, had reasonable expectations. I so. mean, poor child. Like, she's such a good kid. <laughs> such a good kid. Like yeah, no, it is, it is a good series, though. Yeah, all right. So let's close out this episode. Where can we find both of you on the internet? Helen? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Wandering Dreamer. You can find my manga and light novel over at the OASG. You can also find me on the OASG's podcast. It's not my fault the OASG podcast is not popular. Once again, I was not involved in doing this title. I came on after that. And you can also find me on the Taiku Podcast's uh, sister spinoff podcast, Manga in Your Ears, which Corey and I also ramble on about a lot, including that one about Blue Giant, a.k.a. the jazz manga that has like absolutely no sound effects during the jazz music playing scenes. Oh, that's a, that's a shame. It was very baffling, <laughs> let me assure you. There, there's some like lines that signify that sound may be happening. Okay, but in the manga, he's supposed to be playing like the music at like an ear-splitting level, and there's just some <laughs> lines. Like, come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Mercedes? Um, so you can find me first and foremost on Twitter at Pixelated Lenses, where I talk a lot about just about everything. Um, I am also uh, a freelancing Japanese to English localization editor in QA, so I talk a lot about that and a lot about the projects that are under NDA that I want to talk about one day. Um, I am also an anime reviewer for the Anime News Network, as well as on Anime Feminist and But Why Though. You can find me under Mercedes and my last name, Cluis. Uh But yeah, Twitter's where I tend to hang out. So come find me and ask me Shamisen questions. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at K. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Taiku Podcast. It's T-A-I-I-K-U. And you can find all of our episodes at com. Uh, thank you both for coming on. And I'll keep in mind that you are musically oriented if there is another music anime that happens. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Chris, you're on mute. I was not talking, but yes, I was on mute. I had to, uh, I had to step out for a minute. <laughs> I was wondering, like, I asked who Lucy's boyfriend was, and you can immediately chime in. Yeah, I'm sitting there. I'm like, I want to, I can't, but I need to. <laughs> I was. It's Andy. It's my wonderful baby boy, Andy. Boom. Boom.